Okay. All right. So test this out, and we'll go into Jamie. Theoretically, go into Jamie D. <laughs> I would love to. I don't know. You said she's doing the Pens commercials. I don't know. Step with that. <laughs> don't bring that up. All right. Let's test this one out. So, you're listening to Weird Since Besides the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Jamie Lee Curtis, original screen queen of the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Welcome to, I believe it's the eighth episode of the twelfth season of Weird Sins Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, tonight, Jamie Lee Curtis was born in Santa Monica right around Thanksgiving of 1958, the second daughter of famous actor parents Bernard Schwartz, N.E.E. Tony Curtis, and Jeanette Morrison, N.E.E. Janet Lee. And we discussed their filmic and off-screen pairings in our Tony Curtis show a year or so back. Her slightly older sister, Kelly, born in 1956, didn't follow Jamie Lee into acting until the mid-80s. Her handful of roles, including Dan Aykroyd's hoity-toity girlfriend, Muffy, in Trading Places, which we discussed originally in our Eddie Murphy show, and of course taking the lead in Mikola Suave's interesting The Sect, mm. otherwise known as The Devil's Daughter, which we discussed in our Lamberto Bava and Mikola Suave shows several years back. Unfortunately for both girls, Tony and Lee was kind of an ill-fated match, and they divorced in 1962 when Jamie Lee was only a toddler. And unfortunately, by all accounts, Tony was hardly the type to share the kids on court-appointed weekends. Curtis actually claimed he was not interested in being a father, and as discussed in our show on Tony, he actually pulled a total dick move and called all his children out of his will before passing. She finished college, but after one semester of law school, she dropped out and started acting, first working as a bit player in television, including parts on episodes of the Sean Cassidy, Parker Stevens, and the Hardy Boys, Buck Rogers with Jill Gerard, Charlie's Angels, and Columba, even getting a recurring part on the short-lived Operation Petticoat sitcom. In short order, she moved into film, landing the coveted final girl role in John Carpenter's Halloween, which we discussed in both our John Carpenter and Donald Pleasant shows, and this led not only to roles in other Carpenter films and an on-and-off leading or supporting role in the still-ongoing Halloween franchise, but a short-lived career in slasher films. Concerned about being typecast, she began to branch out into comedy, of which she started many over the years, and occasional dramas, and was nominated for, but won few, awards over the years, inclusive of several Golden Globes, People's Choice, and Critics' Choice nods. She dated Adam Ant for a bit there back in the early to mid-80s, presumably after Amanda Donahoe of our Ken Russell show's Lair of the White Worm, and in recent years she's become more of an openly political figure, contributing a recurring spot on the Huffington Post website, and it showed up on The View a few times as well. She's also started authoring children's books, if you can believe that. So, uh, again, I am Doc Savage, and with me is Mr. Lewis Paul. So, hello, Lewis. Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, I, I, I've always had a thing for Jamie Lee Curse. I'm glad we're getting around to this. It's it's funny how many really cool movies she's been in. Yes. And, hey, you know, it's, it's hard for anybody to sustain... Uh, Y'all, uh, a long career, especially when you keep getting sort of typecast in certain roles. Yes, yes, thank you. And and yeah, exactly. And and uh, and yeah, she came out hot and strong. And and I always found her very interesting. I always, I always found her like really like mm, 
<laughs> she was hot and cold for me. She was certain things like perfect, for example, that I was like, oh, okay. That's why I was excited about her. And other <laughs> oh, ones, okay. I was just like, ah. But, you know, as we went on through the years, and it's like, especially recently, I'm like, you know, I'm really starting to like this girl after all this time. I was just like, eh, whatever about her. I'm like, okay, now I get it. So. <laughs> you get it. Thank you. Okay. I guess we're going to start with Halloween. Yes, uh, that okay. is their first major film role, if not her first film role, period. So, Halloween, 1978. We talked a lot about this one in our John Carpenter and Donald Pleasant shows. A low-budget independent project with only one notable character actor in the debut of the daughter of Tony Curtis and Janet Lee. And, of course, we had discussed them in our Tony Curtis show. This should have come and gone without major note. Another minor one-off, like Bob Clark's earlier Black Christmas. And yet its influence, and more so that of its sequel, as we'll get to shortly, led to the birth or at least proliferation and popularization of an entire genre of film, one that subsumed the traditional gothic and imaginative nightmare horror of the prior hundred years for an entire decade plus. Drawing on Carpenter's pronounced Howard Hawks influence with a touch of Hitchcock for garnish, this one took an urban legend about a lunatic murdering teenage babysitters in the 70s and turned it into a classic. Strangely bloodless and like Psycho before it, coming off more bloody and horrific than it ever actually is merely by a well-crafted suggestion, Carpenter takes attack from Hitch's shadow of a doubt in moving the nightmare into the realm of mundanity, an essentially everyday menace, an average man who happens to be a lunatic killer, wandering the streets of a boring midwestern town, literally set in Illinois, randomly appearing and disappearing like floaters in the corner of the eye, gaslighting Curtis into wondering if she's gone completely paranoid, or if there really is some stranger tailing her around and tracking her to her own home. Using one of his patented Casio keyboard-driven minimalist soundtracks a la Steve Reich, whose desert music is still a favorite of mine, or Philip Glass, Carpenter uses both score and dialogue to build a surprising degree of suspense, from the terse, even bizarre discussion between Pleasance's Dr. Loomis and the quarter-point transport driver in the rainstorm that frees Michael to begin his adult killing spree, to the creepy chat about madness and mass murder the cemetery groundskeeper delivers to Pleasance in a later scene. The film actually leaves the viewer feeling its chilly fall setting, which, combined with his deft use of tracking and framing, and for a color film, excellent use of light and shadow, leaves Halloween a perennial classic so suited to the holiday it's named for is nearly an essential view around that time of year, just as much as sappy Hallmark crowd types need to pull out stuff like It's a Wonderful Life or the far more entertaining Holiday Inn around Yuletide. There's really nothing negative to say about this one. Even the soundtrack CZ was wisely packaged with choice bits of Pleasance and Friends dialogue straight from the film alongside the pure music cues that accompanies them. Like so many of Carpenter's early films, this one's not universally praised for a reason. And if I'm not mistaken, that ambulance driver I mentioned earlier, alongside Pleasance, when Michael first escapes, wasn't that Deborah Hill, the other producer? Yes, it was Deborah Hill. Yeah. yeah. So, that's my take. So, what's yours? Oh, it's, you know, <laughs> this movie, I mean, uh, I'm sure the people who like the torture porn movies and like a lot <laughs> of that stuff that's really popular nowadays about, there's some wicked, wicked stuff that people our age and younger are praising uh, I, I see on the social media sites, you know, new films. I'm not knocking them. I've taken a look at them. And I don't know. This is rough. I can't take that stuff. <laughs> but this movie, it's great for a reason because you already mentioned, you know, quite a few things that are good about it. It's, it's, it was like top of his, he was, he was young. Uh, John Carpenter was young, but he, he knew what he was doing. He was top of his game. Everything, you know, like a movie where everything clicks? Yes. Yeah, everything clicks. And I bring this. I, I bring it out of the collection every so often. And I'm like, let me take another look at this. And I'm like, 
fuck, this is really good. Every time, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know. And I'm like, damn, yo. <laughs> She's so good in this. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis is so good in this. And Donald Pleasance is just breathed life into his career. Yeah, we had done two shows on Donald because he had such a long career. Yes, And did. actually, the whole second show was about the new career that he had based on this film. Yeah. We started his whole thing into changing into a horror icon as opposed to a, a quirky character actor in a lot yeah, of yeah, European films. Quirk, yeah, pretty much. And he did stuff like Telephone and so on after this. But in this movie, in this movie, Don, Donald Pleasant was like the fucking guy. Yeah, he, he was. He was like. And to some extent, even more so in the second one, which we'll get to soon. Yeah, yeah. But but in this in this movie, he's like, and I loved how I think he. I, I can't speak for him. He's passed on, but I, I'm, I'm trying to ascertain how we approach this as like, I have to help these people out. I have to help Laurie Strode out the character. And like, so, you know, like some reason Donald, Donald Pleasance amplifies his voice a lot. Yes. Yeah, he starts I, pulling a Pacino in a way. Yeah. Yeah. He, <laughs> yeah. Donald Pleasance does Pacino all the way. He's like, you're not listening. Yeah. I can't even do Pleasance, but he's like, he just, but, oh, it's a great film. I mean, yeah. and she's so terrific in it. I, I, yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis' debut, great movie. So next up is another John Carpenter film, The Fog, 1980. And now we come to one of my favorite of all early 80s horror films, and perhaps more importantly, my favorite among all John Carpenter films, and we did a whole show on him, of course. Moody, atmospheric, and very much a traditional ghost story given Carpenter's trademark siege mentality and tension, this one centers on a small New England-style coastal town on a rocky promontory whose centennial celebration hides a horrible secret relating to a leper ship and a wealth transaction that involved not only theft, but murder. Carpenter's then wife, Adrienne Barbeau, who also, uh, I think previously the only thing she did was Maud, is the late-night DJ and lighthouse keeper who much of the film centers on. Jamie Lee's mom, Janet Lee, who we discussed for her films with former hubby Tony Curtis in that show, is the mayor handling the Big Town Celebration event. Hal Holbrook of Capricorn One and Magnum Force from our Elliot Gould and Clint Eastwood shows is the faithless priest whose church hides the stolen gold. And Tom Atkins of The Detective from our Frank Sinatra show and Maniac Cop is a random townie who picks up free-living, free-loving hippie hitchhiker Jamie Lee. Mm-hmm. Like the slightly later The Children, this one is filled with eerily lit scenes with a fast-moving fog rolling in right before locals are beset by shadowy, malevolent figures from the sea. And lots of tension as one resident after the next opens their door to fall prey to the menace that comes out of the fog. John Houseman cameos as the storytelling old drunk scaring local kids around the campfire, setting the scene for the horrors that follow. The Halloween films, his gruesome remake of The Thing, and post-apocalyptic action film Escape from New York garner more mass chatter and praise, but this has always been his best and most effective film, the sleeper that truly defines the man and his abilities. You really have to wonder also whether Carpenter had seen, and was swiping scenes from, Fulci's Zombie and Gates of Hell slash City of the Living Dead. The opening empty town where inanimate objects start going off, the minor earthquake, the gas station scene, etc. The zombie ghosts with maggots crawling on their faces, the clueless locals facing camera while menaces loom behind, even busting through doors and windows of the church to pull the assistant by the hair a la Olga Carlatos and zombie. It's kind of blatant at times, but it really, whatever derivation, whatever the sourcing, this one really works. It's definitely my favorite of his films. Or, or did Fuji steal from Carpenter? It could be. Oh, those, no, it was the year before. 
But yeah, it's hard to say with these things, you know, production times. Oh, it's a great film. It's funny. Adrian Barbeau was the star of the movie, but they used Jamie Lee Curtis in the the movie posters. And she's still quite young. She's terrific in the film. Everybody's terrific in this film. Adrian Barbeau was really good in this, too. I mean, she's the star of the movie. And uh, it's funny. She really pulls it off. It's I never really thought much of Adrian Barbeau, and and then I and then this movie made me like, oh okay, <laughs> <laughs> I would pay attention. But you got like Jamie Lee, Janet Leigh is a nod to the old, you know, the old style. It's nice to see Janet Leigh in this, and Tom. I always love Tom Atkins, and nice to see him in this. It, it, it it's a role, <laughs> it's a role he would do later on in another. What night of the creeps? <laughs> No, not not the creeps. Another another pick. Oh, Halloween three, you know, which is not related to this show at all. Yeah. But where he, he meets Stacy Nelkin, you know, another younger person, and uh, he's really good because uh, you like you don't have a problem with older guy Tom Atkins hooking up with some younger chick. Uh, Jamie Lee is quite fine in this, and uh, I liked it. And and favorite Carpenter? Well, I still have to say personally Halloween, but. The Fog is quite, quite well up there. So it's probably my second, if I had to choose, personally. So uh, the same year, 1980, she does a couple more, and she gets involved in all these slasher films. First one will be, I guess it could be the first, who knows, Prom Night. Yeah. Paul Lynch of humongous fame directed this early slasher, featuring Halloween's Curtis and Airplane and Police Squad's Leslie Nielsen, of all people, as the principal and father to both Jamie Lee and the victim whose death kicks off the rest of the film's events. Is the usual body count affair where a bunch of kids playing hide-and-seek in an abandoned building scare a younger kid into falling out the window and dying. They all pretend they weren't there, and a local pervert is blamed. Shades of Bob from uh, City of the Living Dead. A decade or so later, they're all teens going to prom, and someone is killing them off in the usual plethora of ways. My favorite is the one who loses his head mid-prom right in the middle of the entire dancing class until our final girl, Jamie, both offs him and discovers his identity. I always liked this one, and like a few other early slashers like Halloween 2, recall my father noting it as one of his favorites of the type. Not necessarily an assessment I agree with, though it is pretty decent by slasher standards. But there's not a lot more to say for Curtis or the film, except that Canadian horrors of the era tend to be darker and moodier than their blowsier, more bombastic and humor-filled American cousins, and hence were often kind of superior to them. Jamie Lee is her typical slasher film, Final Girl Self, but is further afflicted by a terrible perm this time around, which comes off even worse than her oddly preferred <laughs> boyish bob. <laughs> so what's your take? You brought you brought up her perm, huh? Oh God, it was horrible. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it's, it's doable. Uh, <laughs> no, but I'm glad you like this because you know what? I there's not a lot to dislike about Prom Night. Yo, know, yeah. Paul Lynch had a run for a while. You know, Canadian uh, director of uh, horror films, and uh, right around the time these things were become incredibly popular worldwide, the slasher films, and you know, it's not really a knockoff of Halloween. But the funny thing was, there were a lot of knockoffs of Prom Night, which would come later. <laughs> Slaughter's Day and things like that. And uh, Oh, Slaughter High. Yeah, Slaughter High, right. sorry. Slaughter High. And wasn't there like something University, Spider University? Yeah. Yeah, there were. There night quite, School. Nights. There were a lot. Right, you're right. Uh, what the hell was that other one? Um, sorority Girls Massacre. Yeah. I think Raquel Ward or something like that. Rachel Ward. Was yes. The, uh, sorority House something or other. Yeah. Yeah, it was a bunch of them. 
So this is an okay picture. It's above average, way above average, actually, for this kind of thing. And and it's not bad. I, I'd recommend it. If you've not seen the original Prom Night, I, I'd say go check it out. I'd say you would have a fun time. Yeah, just make sure you get one of the more recent masters that were released, like on Blu-ray, for example, because I had had one of the earlier ones. I don't know if it was a lead or one of those labels like that, and it was like mud. You, you couldn't see anything. Yes, yes, you're right. It, it was very... I think it was elite, and and it was a uh, it was very dark looking master. But they've cleaned that up in more recent ones. So. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Terror Train. Yes, so same year Terror Train, particularly twisted early slasher from Canadian director Roger Spottiswoode, who later gave us Stop or My Mom Will Shoot and Tomorrow Never Dies from our <laughs> Sylvester Stallone and Trio of James Bond shows. A geek gets seduced into a sick prank by reluctant sorority pledge Jamie Lee, who thinks he's going to get lucky, but winds up sidling next to an unburied corpse. The poor stiff, pun very much intended, flips out and winds up in a rubber room. Senior year, the sorority and frat who set the schmuck up are doing a New Year's train ride come masquerade ball. There's a red herring magic act, none other than David Copperfield, and the body count begins. Which mass passenger is the nutjob freshman prankee? This one is a lot more memorable to me than Prom Night, with plenty of atmosphere and a few seedy elements like the necrophiliac overtones of the aforementioned prank, or the killer fooling everyone by going in drag at one point. It always stuck in my mind as one of the better non-franchise slashers out there, but other than the train setting and some perversity to it, there's not a lot else to say. What do you think of this one? It's it's actually better than you would think, folks, and uh, I believe they, they're remaking this or have remade this for one of the countless hulu you know jerk off whatever the fuck they're called <laughs> you know uh streaming services oh uh, i haven't seen it i don't know if it's done yet without jamie lee i believe but uh it's very well done for what it is and it's atmospheric you know this does not to be serious on my part there's not a lot of good train terror films out there horror express is probably one of my favorites Anybody's listening to this for a long time. And Terror Train is not bad. Yeah, then we have the Cassandra Crossing, but we covered that in the past. Yes, we did. I think that was in, uh, wasn't that the Richard Harris show? That was the Richard Harris show, yeah. yes. And, of course, Break Hard Express, or all that one was from uh, the Charles Bronson show. Yeah. I like train movies, so I agree with you on that. Even the old ones, which are actually pretty good, like, um, what the hell was that? It wasn't Pursuit to Algiers. One of those Sherlock Holmes ones with Basil Rathbone. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you're right, yeah. And, of course, there was other ones like, oh, geez, there's a couple of noirs. I mean, I can't remember them all. The Narrow Margin was one of them. One of them has uh, Neil Hamilton from uh, Batman, the Commissioner Gordon. <laughs> but, yeah, but, but as far as a terror film goes, it's 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 quite effective. It's quite oh, good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Terror Train. Yeah. So next year, 1981, Road Games, directed by Richard Franklin of Patrick, the porn star featuring softcore Phantasm and Psycho 2. This surprisingly boring TV movie-style cross between Spielberg's Duel, without any attention whatsoever, TV's BJ and the Bear, and the world's worst attempt at replicating Hitchcock's rear window. This Aussie stinker features cokehead Stacy Keach mugging, doing goofy voices, and chattering away to himself like a lunatic as a cross-country trucker with a dog he claims is a dingo who has suspicions about a certain van he keeps crossing paths with whose driver may or may not be a Ted Bundy-style hitch hitchhiker a bunny rabbit no i'm serious in the 1800s there was a plague of rabbits here they ate all the vegetation and the sand dudes begin to advance and everybody left watch out for the bunnies huh 
After picking up an annoying old chatterbox fighting with her husband, who is incessant theorizing about the killer leads to think that he's the guilty party, he picks up Jamie Lee 38 minutes into the picture. As the two exchange theories, it turns out the killer has been framing him as the hitchhiker murderer, so it's up to Keech and Curtis to catch the guy. There's a twist ending where the killer left one of the bodies in his trailer, roll credits. This whole thing sounds a hell of a lot better than it actually is. You get a great scene set in the world's most disgusting bathroom. Seriously, it's in a junkyard, and you know it's the men's room because there's a headshot of Fred Flintstone taped up outside, and it's fucking gross. It's a moldy, burned-out health hazard of a shitter where Keach confronts what he thinks is the killer, but it's really some guy that looks like Gary Newman, and that's the high point of the film. I mean, it sounds like it should be so much better, especially with Jamie Lee in it, and she does enliven things as she finally gets into the damn film halfway through it. But Keach just, he's constantly going on. I don't know if it's supposed to be funny or what, but he just comes off like a lunatic, and it's like he's mugging like it's a cartoon comedy. I really was disappointed with this one. That's all I can say. You have not been in weird bantams like I have. <laughs> I hope not. That was pretty <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> yeah, there, I've seen much more disgusting bathrooms, my friend. I know you told me about that one behind the porno theater where all the gay guys used to hang out and cook up. <laughs> Yeah, not 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 that I went there to hook. No, but, uh, but <laughs> that up. I had to go take. Yeah, well, no, I, no, forget that. You you shared the story on air. So. <laughs> so yeah, so Road Games. I actually like this movie. Um, more than you do, apparently. It's a Hitchcockian thriller. You know, Richard Franklin was really good at that kind of thing. I think you know he did psych. I think he actually studied with Hitchcock, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, he was on some of his sets, like watching him and talking. He did Psycho too, which is a Pretty, it is pretty good. I like that one. It's a ballsy kind of take on the whole kind of psycho thing. I I did not dislike this film. I actually like Road Games. Yes, Jamie doesn't pop up for a bit, and then there's that. Um, it happens a lot with her, doesn't it? Like uh, older guy and then younger woman. You know, she she's like she's almost transient. She's definitely younger, and and they hook up. And she rides along with him. Yeah, I get it that Stacy Keach is like a trucker with his, with his, you know, his, his beloved dog. And, you know, he talks to a dog a lot. He talks to himself a lot. <laughs> That's the problem. That's actually what ruins the movie. Otherwise, it would be fine. Yeah, you know, he, he he does all kinds of crazy riffing shit, like, you know, kind of character actor shit. Yeah, but he's like mugging. It's not just like okay, like a Donald Pleasant's just going off and doing whatever. He's like trying to be funny or something. It's not. I don't it's just think like, what's so. This guy? I don't see it that way. I don't. See, I, th- I think that that Stacy Keach was just like deciding I'm gonna play it this way, and nobody's gonna stop me. <laughs> well, that's what it was. It, it seems indulgent. Like okay, you know what? I'm a guy on the road. I'm lonely, so why don't I be a little bit crazy? And you know, I don't know if it really was supposed to be or not. But he kept pretending his dog was a dingo and trying to scare people with that. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this is just over the top. And for like, you know, 40 minutes before you even get Jamie Lee in the picture, it starts getting better. Well, I thought wow. the guy was creepy. The killer guy was creepy. Yes. And I thought, I thought, what was going on with that? You know, the garbage bags and and the you know the cops keep pulling him over because they were starting to suspect Stacy Keach, you know, as as the killer. And you know, it was like. I like the kind of movie when it makes you think, like, well, wait a minute. Is Stacey Keach a killer? You know, because there were a couple of moments like that. Um, he definitely tried to set it up like a Hitchcock film, and that much of it works. That much of it works, yeah. And, you know, and, and, and I like to see older guys banging younger girls. And that, that was really <laughs> good. Uh, 
I'm kidding you all. I'm kidding you all. Well, is sorry. he? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say sort of. <laughs> sorry. Halloween 2. So, yes. <laughs> Same year. Halloween 2. Well, it's the original oddly bloodless Halloween that kicked off the slasher craze that dominated horror in the 80s. It's really this film that really set the mold from which so many others drew inspiration, if not directly swiped elements thereof. Following directly from the first film, Curtis is holed off to the local hospital, while Don Pleasance's Dr. Loomis basically is still trailing Michaels. It's, you know, a direct continuation, almost like, here's, here's the last scene we did, and here's the first scene. We discussed this one in both our Don Pleasance and John Carpenter shows, and I've always loved this one, in fact, more than the original in a lot of ways. It's perhaps not so well-crafted, but it's a whole hell of a lot more entertaining and eerie, with its far more relentless Michael Myers stalking Curtis throughout the shadowy abandoned corridors of a poorly staffed night shift hospital, and even outside into the parking lot, not to mention the nurse's station, break room, and basement boiler room, strangely equipped with a jacuzzi for some insane reason. There's a lot more implied sex in TNA, at least through that whole hospital bed jacuzzi sequence. Lame comedy and a much bigger body count, starting right from the credits, where Michael literally wanders through busy town streets unmolested to murder some random old folks watching the idiot box and a young woman doing laundry. Plus the absurd red herring of the overage trick-or-treater who wanders into the middle of the road in front of a speeding car, causing a huge accident and explosion for no apparent reason. Shadowy, almost gothic, this one condenses the sparse of effective sequences of the first film, like the rain-swept opening with Pleasance that we talked about earlier, and the hospital transport driver and Michael's escape, not to mention all the murders, and then amps them up tenfold. Pleasance practically comes off as the hero here, with his face-off shootout with his nemesis to save Curtis. She's far more believably terrified than in any other film of the series, and there's a definite oneric feel, a nightmare scenario filled with light and shadow, where the protagonist is stalked relentlessly without hope of escape or effect help from anyone surrounding. Say all you want about the original for all its production troubles and minor faults, Halloween 2 has always been the pinnacle of the series for me, and not only among the first, but arguably one of, if not, the best slashers ever lens. I love this film. What's your take? Oh, it's really quite good. It's, it's really quite good. And, you know, people, <laughs> years have passed, and, you know, both of us are not any younger, but, you know, nowadays you see, you know, every time a Halloween film comes up, a new one, and people tend to uh, revisit these other things, and they, they don't have any uh, anything to work with, and, you know, they didn't see them when they were new, and they didn't see them when they were in the theaters, they didn't see them when they were new on video, whatever, and they just come up with these brain-dead fucking things. That's the problem with the young guys. And, you know, they might have some valid general criticism about things. Yeah. But because they don't understand the period these things came well, from and, you know, what was surrounding, what followed it versus what preceded it, they just make up crazy ideas. I'm like, no, that's not true. <laughs> well, not only that, because a lot of these people, a lot of these people, and some of you might, might be my friends who are listening to this, but a lot of you guys don't get it that, you know, this is supposed to take place in New English, New England-ish area. And... If you have to go to emergency room, there's nobody there, man. Yeah, I, we talked about this in our Pleasant show. You, you experience up in one of those shitty hospitals? Yes, right, okay, yeah. <laughs> it's not a metro hospital show. we're talking about. It's no, no, somewhere. I did not go to a metro hospital. <laughs> no, it, if, you, if you have an emergency and it's late at night, you're in New England. There's two or three people working at Tops. Mm-hmm. Tops. If it's a super emergency, like in this movie, they will call the doctor. Mm-hmm. And and he never arrives. <laughs> you remember yeah, that, he got to get him out of bed. He's got to drive from home. He's got to drive from home and he's drunk. So <laughs> remember that. So yep. 
So, I mean, there's a lot of truth in this. This was pretty much well-researched, what I liked about it. Yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis, like, she ups the ante as far as, like, being frightened, you know. Mm-hmm. She's injured as, you know, as Laurie Strode, her character from the first Halloween, she's injured. And, you know, we got a lot of people from the first picture popping up in here who survived the first film. And um, I think it's so well done. This is one of the best, one of the best hospital siege films with. Oh, I think it is the best hospital siege film. Compared okay, to something yeah. like X-Ray or. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Good. No, I mean, yeah. Or visiting hours. <laughs> Yeah, of all those things, no, this is really good. This is really good. And and, and and you are right and correct to say that a lot of the later pictures probably thought they were modeling themselves in Halloween, but they were actually modeling themselves in Halloween too. Yes, I totally think so. And interestingly, we were both talking about how Jamie Lee ups the nervousness and the fear in this one. You know, the later films, especially the recent ones, they've really played up, oh, no, she's got PTSD from all these experiences. Okay, that's true. Here is where it shows. This is the first time, and it's actually the best time, because she's young and really throwing herself into it. She's not, like, older and kind of like, okay, whatever, you know, I'll play it subdued and, you know, try to be subtle with it. No, no, it's right up front. She is fucking freaking out. She's terrified. And you can see it. Wouldn't you, whether you're a guy or a gal? But I mean, you're, 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 you can you're see injured, it and feel you're it. You're in a hospital, and a maniac <laughs> is fucking coming after you. And there's nobody to help you. Even the few people that are there are all dead. <laughs> you know right, right. And a lot of people say, "Well, why is this a fake movie? There's nobody in the hospital, dude." It's whether it's shift. Northern California or it's Northern New England, late at night, hospitals are severe. They're rarely attended by anybody. This is not a metro hospital. This is, you know, out in the sticks, basically. Yeah. And it's the night shift. This is the overnight. Nice. You got a couple of candy stripers. You got a staff, you know, whatever the hell, the, the desk nurse. Candy, candy and... stripers? Did you say candy stripers? Yes. Oh, there is. That's the one that was, like, fucking that guy in the jacuzzi. Well, <laughs> yeah. uh, 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 okay. Say no more. Say no more. <laughs> For those of you who don't know what a candy striper is, look it up. It's <laughs> a wonderful movie made. Uh, no, we're not. <laughs> Yes. You remember that one from the 70s, the candy strippers? <laughs> no, when that, when that, when, yeah, okay. <laughs> trading places? So anyway, yes. Two years later, Trading Places. We talked this one on our Eddie Murphy show. Dan Aykroyd of our John Belushi shows Blues Brothers and Neighbors is a silver spooner rich fuck working for his dad, Don Amici, of Oscar from our Sylvester Stallone show, who makes a $1 bet with fellow geriatric plutocrat Ralph Bellamy from Disorderlies, Oh God, and Rosemary's Baby from our Donald Pleasance and Roman Polanski shows that they could turn homeless bum Murphy into a power player stockbroker and overprivileged son Aykroyd into a helpless poor man. Swell guys, huh? Sure enough, their playing with people's lives does allow Murphy to thrive and gain success, while Aykroyd winds up living with a sympathetic hooker, Curtis, before all three team up with disaffected butler Denim Elliott, who we discussed in our Hammer and Amicus shows, to give the two pricks their comeuppance. Despite having three veterans and two power player 80s comedians in the cast, it's Curtis who runs rings around the rest of the cast acting-wise, really managing to stand out and create a fully fleshed-out character while showing plenty of full flesh yourself at the same time. It's a stupid, dated movie, but it's well worth it just to watch Jamie Lee serve everyone else in the cast with a small part that could have easily been dismissible eye candy in other hands. Yes, she looks great here, but the acting really is shocking. I'm like, oh my god. I don't care about anybody else in this cast. She's the one you're paying attention to. And that says a lot. 
What's your take? Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis steals this film in more ways than one. Completely. <laughs> and completely. She, she, I, and I love that Dan Aykroyd's Dan Aykroyd's name is Louis Winthorpe the Third, and she's always going, <laughs> Louis, Louis. I'm like, okay, Jamie. <laughs> And she plays Ophelia, and and, and and back in the day, there I had a buddy who did, who who had a girlfriend, and he did her really really wrong, and and she came over to me one night. Why doesn't he like me anymore? Her name was Ophelia. <laughs> I'm like Ophelia, and I sang that song, and she goes, I don't know that song. I'm like, forget it. <laughs> so um, anyway, so a little rebound romance there. <laughs> Yeah, I was trying to like, you know. <clears throat> anyway, so hey, it happens. Yeah. Anyhow, hey, I'm a professional. I, I'm good at what I do. Uh, so Jamie, <laughs> JJ, but I failed then. Uh, Jamie Lee, yeah, I agree with you. She steals this picture, um, mm-hmm. and she's so good. Yeah, she's so good. And. Uh, it's this is one of those pictures film. I was talking about before where I always paid attention to her. I'm like, holy shit. <laughs> That's the same girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's yeah. so good in this. And and, and um, she's so good in this and she's so comfortable in herself. Yes. As an actress in this film that when she does her uh, few, uh, nobody get excited. If you haven't seen Trading Places, when she does her few nude scenes, mm-hmm. she's so comfortable in them. She's she's just like so natural. Yeah, it's not like that Holly Berry a million dollars a tip thing. She's not resenting it. She's totally comfortable with it. Yeah, yeah, she's totally comfortable with it. Like, like you're like okay, and you could tell like Dan Aykroyd and Eddie are like oh shit. <laughs> <laughs> Even when it, she's clothed, you can see right through. And when she's really wearing these nice outfits, you know, she's supposed to be yeah, hooker. But oh, still. No, it's, it's a it, it, it's a really good John Landers film. It's a underrated John Landers film. We're gonna have to say. And, yeah, we got the presence of Bellaby and Donamichi from the old school, but nice to see them. And I'm like, hell, why not? But, uh, hell, Jamie steals this picture. Yeah. So the next year, here's another one where she's uh, very comfortable in her own skin. Love Letters. Yeah. And Amy Holden Jones, who directed the original sort of serious Slumber Party Massacre with Brinky Stevens and later dumped crap with Mystic Pizza and Indecent Proposal on our collective heads, Got this one finances a reward for the success of the former film for Roger Corman. Another wacky neo-feminist bit of nonsense along the lines of the jaw-dropping old boyfriends from our John Belushi show. This one centers on Jamie Lee as an NPR classical music DJ with a drunk for a dad who finds an old batch of love letters between her mother and a married man that she had a long affair with. Lacking any good role models, she decides to replicate her mother's odd and desperate search for affection by, you guessed it, banging a married man, then being surprised that he won't dump his wifey for his piece on the side, namely her. A James Keach, later of National Lampoon's Vacation and Moving Violations, is the guy in question. Keach looks for all the world like Howard Hessman fucked Richard Chamberlain, a hangdog-looking, fair-haired, and balding guy with a beard and pointedly sensitive demeanor. While Curtis goes around in a sweater with no bra, a sexy one-off shoulder job, and bears those famous and rather sumptuous breasts several times, even giving us a full rear view at one point. Pretty daring for a B-list plus actress, even just past the far more daring golden age of cinema. 
It's a typical Scorpion acquisition, much akin to the David Selby, Maud Adams, Girl in Blue, the Joan Collins parallel universe drama Say Hello to Yesterday, or the Jenny Agutter Sweet William. Pensive, if surprisingly watchable, women's drama really of interest due to the casting and some unusual aspects thereof. In this case, several sequences of Jamie Lee in various stages of undress and getting banged, often quite vigorously, by a subpar-looking schmuck. What's your take on this one? Well, James Keach is Stacy's brother, and... Uh... <laughs> But Stacey Keys did a lot better stuff than James ever did. <laughs> no, James wasn't a terrible actor. And, and, but I was really, yeah, I agree. I was very surprised. She, she this might have been her lashing out phase. I, you know, I, I, I'm not going to speak for you, Jamie Lee Curtis. but uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I get what you're saying, especially yeah. with the whole thing with Tony. And... Yeah, the whole thing. She had, she had this thing with Tony Curtis and Dan around this period. Where she was, but she came to terms terms with it pretty quickly. But she she did have a lashing out period where she's like trying to react against you know how her father was and you know why her father and her mom got divorced so young and while she even still, the typecasting in slasher films. Yeah, that too. So yeah, she she she's very much visible in this film. Um, for you boneheads, yeah, she's nude. Often, uh, but it's a it's a serious film. It's a serious drama. So there, there's that. It's it's quite a film to see. Yeah, actually, there's three of these in a row where she really kind of shows off her body in a lot of ways. So 1985 is perfect. Anyone old enough to remember the 80s and 90s should recall how chain gyms, the kind where they mix free weights and those with treadmills and aerobics classes, were really narcissist pickup joints. Remember Jacqueline Pickup, they used to call it? Well, that's what this one is about, and it's filled to the gills with sexy leggings, spandex, headbands, and ponytails shaking their moneymakers for the camera. There were a few slasher films like this, Fulci's Murder Rock, Robicide, and Death Spot come immediately to mind, as does a prominent scene in Lindsay's Nightmare City. There were morning aerobic shows like Kiana Tom's Body Shaping, Anime, Bubblegum Crisis' Lina ran aerobics classes every time they weren't on a mission. Nintendo had the very similar dance aerobics game. And HBO Late Night had those amazingly sleazy aerobicized shorts for horny guys to enjoy. And I love them all. Still do. This one took an actress that I hadn't really paid much attention to previous to this, despite devouring all these slasher films on pay cable as a youth, with or without my father, who is also a fan of this sort of fare. Name of the star of a show tonight, and alongside her role in Trading Places, was one of the extremely rare times until very recent days that made me give her a second glance and a raised eyebrow. Because she's kind of smoking here, and the jiggle factor is high, not just for her most obvious assets, but even for an ass man like yours truly. John Travolta of The Devil's Reign from our William Shatner and Satan in the 70s shows is a Rolling Stone reporter doing a story on sex in a single gym rat. He joins a local L.A. gym and starts interviewing folks like Saturday Night Live's Lorraine Newman and Mary Lou, I slept with everyone in town, Henner of Taxi, but loses the plot when he gets involved with Instructor Curtis, who doesn't trust journalists and turns in a puff piece, which pisses off real-life Rolling Stone head Jan Wenner. Wenner hands it over to Rewrite Men, and a savage re-edit is printed, hilariously but lawsuit-baitingly referring to Newman as the most used piece of equipment in the gym, leaving everybody pissed off at him, including Curtis. But there's a last-act happy ending when he refuses to turn state's evidence against his prior interviewee and winds up jailed for contempt of court, which makes Curtis believe that he didn't write the Hatchet Man piece he originally intended to. Yay? Go ass-kissing in journalism and critique? <laughs> Director James Bridges worked with Travolta on The Ridiculous Urban Cowboy when riding the mechanical bull and line dancing that Kenny Rogers was briefly a thing outside of Red State Territory, and the far more gripping China Syndrome, but this was one of his last films. 
Travolta had a short-lived brush with viability around the early to mid-80s, with at least De Palma's blowout in this film to his credit. To this day, those two are the only Travolta films that I ever liked or have in the collection, though I was subjected to a hilariously awful double pill of grease and Saturday Night Fever as a child. I thoroughly enjoyed revisiting this one, and always do. It's a surprisingly regular view over the years. No, I always liked this. Actually, it wasn't an L.A. place. It was a Jersey City place. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Actually, if if you if you rewatch the movie, there's uh, the opening credits. It's a Jersey set of journals where he's working. He's working out, which is. Uh, I know he's flying back and forth. So. Yeah, yeah. He's actually in a Jersey. City. Yeah, who the fuck knew? <laughs> he's in a Jersey City workout place. Who the fuck knew that? Um, <laughs> so, oh my God, Jimmy Lee Curtis. Jimmy Lee Curtis. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't need to. She's say something that. else in this one. <laughs> something. She's. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> And for the guys, John Travolta looks pretty, you know, mm. so, you know. Yeah, he's basically up there working for sweat if you guys are into that, <laughs> or girls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, if you want, you know, he's, you know, yeah, hey, hey. <laughs> so, uh, he's past Blading Barbarino at this point, let's put it that way. I think it was around, he'd already done Blowout, so he was getting to be a lot more serious. He's, you know, he's really, he's actually pretty good in the role. You know, you know like, yeah. as you mentioned, he did Blowout around this time, and a couple other pictures around this time. He, he succumbed to a thing after this where only appearing in the Tarantino's Pulp Fiction really kind of pulled him out of that gutter. But, uh, yeah, I, at this time period, you know, John Travolta, Jamie Lee Curtis, they were such a number together. And it was like, and they knew it because, you know, when, when they, they were, whatever John's sexuality may be, I like the guy. I like the guy. He's got kids. I'm not saying shit. But I like the guy. I don't care. He's bald. He's proud of it. But the way he's bending over, and then the way she's bending over, and they, you know, and, and it's like the director knew, like, I'm going to fuck around with this shit. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's the closest thing you're going to find to those aerobicized things I was talking about, which are amazing if you can find them on YouTube or whatever. Yeah, it's much better. This is like aerobicized and get some gel. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Have you ever seen those things? Because they used to play them on Cinemax late night all the time in between movies. And basically, it's not there for aerobics. It was there for horny guys. Because oh, the stuff they were doing is so, so hypersexual. So hypersexual. Oh, it's like, holy it, shit. Oh, you hooked up with the missus. Like, don't bother <laughs> me right now. I'm watching, like, uh, Jane Fonda. <laughs> no, no, no. But this is, you, you, if you haven't seen these things, you got to look them up on it's YouTube. Okay, I'm pretty sure it's called a robe size. No, you're right. <laughs> and you will enjoy them. <laughs> uh, so anyway, she does a couple more films that I did not, I was not able to see. So I don't know if you want to cover any of those. A Man in Love, Amazing Grace and Chuck, and Dominic and Eugene. And then she goes to do A Fish Called Wanda. Oh, that's a good so, segue. That's good. A ridiculously overrated, unfunny heist film Ice. featuring Curtis Ouch. and... Curtis and Kevin Klein of our of our Whoopi Goldberg show Soap Dish as an American couple of grifters who wind up pulled in on a British jewel heist run by Mighty Python's Michael Palin and UK TV bit player Tom Georgeson. Yeah, I know who. 
fellow Python John Cleese is Jordison's lawyer, who Curtis comes on to because he probably knows where the jewels from the heist are secured, as they betrayed their partners from across the pond, turning him into the cops thereafter. Things keep getting more and more complicated as Klein gets jealous over Curtis and Cleese. Cleese blurts out his affection for her during Jordison's trial, ending his marriage and flubbing the case, supposedly thereby ending his legal career, and then without a job or wife, he decides to abscond with the diamonds himself. Many double-crosses and absurdist Monty Python-esque incidents ensue. Yeah, I'm of the generation that appreciated Python's bizarre non-sacrator humor in films like The Clip Fest and Now for Something Completely Different and Holy Grail, and even to a much lesser extent, Life of Brian, Meaning of Life, and Yellowbeard. But this? Despite friends seeming to love this stinker, I never warmed to it in the slightest, despite a number of abortive attempts to revisit it over the years. It's not funny. Curtis is hardly in her occasional hot number mode, despite being scripted as a seductress playing all sides against the middle, and it's just kind of turgid and flat. If I want to see a film with a little sex and a lot of backstabbing, I pull out something sleazy like The Grifters or an old dark house horror mystery. This one, despite its ridiculously inappropriate lofty reputation, just kind of sucks. So obviously you have a very different take, so go ahead. Oh, wait. I liked it when I first saw it, but you're right. Uh, rewatching value kind of dissipates after a while. I think a lot yeah. of it has to do with Kevin Klein's weirdly overacting oh, yeah. as Otto. Uh, you know, it's it was nice to see John Cleese and Michael Palin in the same film, and they were both affecting weird kind of roles. I don't know. This is strange. The the weird. The, okay, so where's the strange thing is Charles Crichton, the director, had been around for a long, long time, and. He's he he's been making you know he co-directed Dead of Night in 1945. That's that's how long this guy's been around. And like the last movie he made before A Fish Called Wanda was a 1965 movie. So like okay, <laughs> but this this is it's a very strange film. It's it it it's uh, it kind of balances between a Monty Python esque unusual oddity and the kind of pictures Jamie Lee was making previous to this and then I don't know it's a very strange movie but a lot of people like it oh they love it I mean I literally have friends that since it came out oh a fish called Wanda I'm like I don't get it it just doesn't work but, and and I get what they're trying to shoot for with the script with the character for her but yeah. it's so staid it's like this doesn't work She's capable of doing this. She's done it in other films, so I don't get it. She's good. She's good. I, you know, I can't say she's not good. No, no, it's just she's very prim. <laughs> you know, for somebody that's supposed to be a seductress, playing all these sides and screwing this guy to screw that guy to make the money, it's not working. So. Did you see anyway. Blue, Blue Steel? Yes, I did, unfortunately. Uh, and I'd seen it before, too. So, Jamie Lee gets somewhat oddly miscast as a rookie cop. And I don't mean the usual buddy cop action hero thing. I mean an actual beat cop here who guns down a perp during a holdup and winds up playing the victim at the hands of every single guy in the film thereafter. Ron Silver of Silent Rage and Time Cop from our Chuck Norris and John claude Van Damme shows. Richard Jenkins of Sea of Love and Eddie from our Al Pacino and Wolf Goldberg shows. And Louise Fletcher of Shadow Zone and Invaders from Mars, from our Full Moon Pictures and Toby Hooper shows, fill out the cast. Despite being produced by Oliver Stone, this one was supposed to come out through Vestron and Lightning Video, two VHS labels who specialize in low-rent direct-to-video store junk like Fred and Ray Pictures and stuff like Video Dead or Bloodsuckers from Outer Space. Occasionally they score an older Euro horror from like Bruno Mattei or Jess Franco, usually in those big box clamshells and very edited. But the labels were apparently folding around this time, so it lucked into a release through a major, namely MGM. You might think at first that this was an action film, and it's not. 
Nor is it some serial killer cop film hybrid like Ten to Midnight, Hero and the Terror, or Silent Rage from our Bronson and Chuck Norris shows. Weirdest of all, it's not even directed by some incel type of weird issues with women. It's actually the product of Catherine Bigelow, whose only other notable pictures in a very short filmography are the awful, overly gory vampire western Until Dark, and the interesting but flawed attempt at a grunge or a Blade Runner, Strange Days. Essentially a lifetime production, this woman is victim fair, puts Curtis in the embarrassing position of having to fight her bosses, co-workers, and presumably internal affairs about her fitness to be a cop in the first place, her wife-beating father who hates her for being a cop, and then being easily seduced by a nutjob yuppie stockbroker, Silver, who as it turns out actually stole the perp's gun and therefore caused her issues at work, and then flipped out and became a Son of Sam-style random shooter to boot. Worse, he picks her up when they share a cab soon after the holdup, reveals he's an obsessive stalker and that he's the killer, and then when she arrests him, he gets off due to lack of evidence, kills her friend and partner, who just fucked her, and rapes her besides. Yeah, she finally goes down at the end, but how unsatisfying and ridiculously grim, not to mention how this whole thing leaves Curtis looking like a complete idiot, easily manipulated, seduced, and incompetent in both job and life. Really, lady? I don't understand this fucking movie. I don't know why Jamie Lee took it. It just sucks. It, it's it's a lifetime classic. There you go. What's your take? Well, well, getting back to Catherine Bigelow. Uh... They don't even make good tea, Bigelow. <laughs> no, she made the. She, she won Best Director, Best Picture for The Hurt Locker, Doll, in 2008, <laughs> and she was nominated for Best Picture of a Zero Dark Thirty in 2012. So I just want to say she's not entirely who you thought. So anyway, back to this movie. It's strange. It's funny because Ron Silver. It's funny, you know, going back to Time Cop. He was really good at playing this prick bastard. Yeah, yuppie pricks, basically. Yuppie pricks. And, you know, it's, you know, so the thing is, so Jamie Lee gets hooked up with this guy who's like, we know right away if you see Ron Silver, we know he's, he's no good. <laughs> and, and, you know, he's probably good at disarming people, but their character, but, you know, like she bangs a guy, like, you know, right away, he's, he's a serial killer motherfucker. So, without the dislove that you have for Catherine Bigelow, I thought it was an interesting movie, but it didn't do Jamie Lee Curtis any favors. No. It's such a weird film. Yeah, it's totally uncharacteristic of her, and she probably shouldn't have it in her filmography. Anyway, next she does something called Queen's Logic, I have no idea. And then, in 1991 and 1994, she does My Girl and My Girl 2. Can I take a pit stop? Go ahead. My girl. <laughs> Talking about my girl, my And I'm back. You have me singing the Mentor's Golden Showers. <laughs> really? oh, Do you remember them? <laughs> I still have the record for, uh, what was it, You Asked For It all these years later. <laughs> so anyway, we're talking about the My Girl movies. Yet another one of those sub-Spielbergian middle American Hallmark jobs, those awful maudlin sentimentality suffused crap fests about a kid growing up and the emotional roller coaster of puberty and dealing with step-parents and shit like that. Loony religious right cultists and murderer from the odd gay conversion therapy slasher Dave Dam, Anna Chlumsky, is the precocious brat in question. Weird Popeye at Home Alone store and teenage bride Macaulay Culkin is her nerdy pal. 
Dan Aykroyd, the single father, and Jamie Lee, the cool mortician. Seriously, she's one of those makeup bars for open casket funerals, and Aykroyd runs the funeral home she works at, who gives her advice until she starts fucking Aykroyd and threatens to become her new mom. Wonder Years-style heartwarming bullshit ensues. In long hair and bangs for a change, this is one of those pictures like Trading Places, Perfect, Fierce Creatures, and some parts of True Lies, where Curtis looks damn good for what that's worth in a film this lame and pandering. This one was such a big hit with the family-friendly crowd, they made a sequel where Chlumsky, what a name for a marquee, I think she'd adopt a pseudo, is a teenager and flies out west doing some stupid school assignment on someone you admire, so she picks her dead mother. To nobody's shock but her own, she discovers her mother was hardly a Madonna figure and more of a whore, so to speak, and had to deal with that reality sandwich. Roll credits. This time Jamie Lee's barely in it, though she is knocked up by Dandy Dan. Yay? <laughs> I don't know why these films even exist. I hate this kind of shit. Surprisingly, My Girl is a My Girl is a kind of movie all our weird friends would like because it's really kind of a twisted fucking picture. I mean, think about it's it. Because they're morticians? Know, <laughs> no, the morticians and fucked up family kind of thing. And That's for sure. And actually, Dan Aykroyd's not bad in this. And, no, he's and, fine. And I, I could see Jamie Lee, you know, and him like, whatever happened to Anna Chomsky anyway? I have no and, idea. Uh, who knows, right? Uh, we can we can find out, but we don't care. So, <laughs> but anyway, surprisingly, this was a huge fucking hit. Yes. I'm like, oh, weird kids get together, but the the mom fucks them. You know, <laughs> it was it's weird. Um, yeah, remember, this wasn't around the time that Heather's was big, so I guess. <laughs> yeah, but Heather's is is a weird kind of thing. Yeah, you're right though. Jamie Lee's hardly in the sequel, nah. and uh, you know, not much we can recommend about that. Mother's Boys. Did you see that? No, I did not. I did see Forever Young though. Mother's Boys. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should see this one. Oh my God, Joe. Oh. <laughs> this is up on your sicko list. You should watch this one. Jamie Lee uh, was with Peter Gallagher, you know, when he was like back in the day when he was a good looking guy. And uh, she's hooked up with him. She leaves him. She hooks up with these other guys. And then she ends up in the hospital and she starts telling her grown children, like, your dad was no good. And, and she kind of leads him, leads the boys to a place of bad stuff. And, and I, I don't know how to say this. There's some incest stuff <laughs> kind of hinted at. And I never knew what to make of this movie. I'm like, why did you even do this picture? It's <laughs> it's 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 a very strange picture. So post doing a Jamie Lee show, you should you should check this out because <laughs> Mother's Boys was something that always bothered me because it's like I get it you want to branch out, but at the same time it's just pretty freaking bizarre. Well, after Blue Steel, I guess. <laughs> yeah, after, this is like in that realm of Blue Steel, but even more hard kitty. True Lies? No, actually, Forever Young I wanted to do. Uh, okay. From uh, right around, I think it was the year before Mother's Boys. Oh, you're right. That's a pretty good picture. I enjoy that. Yeah. Weird Mel Gibson fantasy melodrama that swipes the Captain America conceit of a military man winding up cryogenically frozen and awakened 50 years later, but without the superheroics. Apparently, the mad scientist only tests his machine on slur-slinging Mel when he asks for it because his girlfriend goes into a coma on a wedding day. Hello, sappy much? And when he gets awakened by a bratty kid playing around in an abandoned military bunker yet, he gets gaslighted by officialdom, though they wind up chasing after him, and winds up relying on the kid's mom, Jamie Lee, to find his jilted bride so he can marry her, even though he's stuck suddenly aging and she's geriatric. 
Yay? Mel, of course, hails from Mad Max and Lethal Weapon. The kid is that literal hobbit, Elijah Wood. And <laughs> grumpy Cheers asshole, George Went is also on hand. Directed by Friday the 13th and H2O man Steve Miner, and written by J.J. Abrams of the recent Star Trek remake films, post-original series, post-Next Generation, and a few post-Lucas Star Wars ones, this is a very serious-feeling picture with a somber tone, and Gibson looking perpetually lost and miserable like a basset hound throughout. Almost nothing happens beyond some old-style fisticuffs with Curtis's drunken ex, a leak in the closet and fixing some roof tiles, and a trip to the library might go fiche. Seriously, that's the entire film, sans some late in the proceedings rather mellow pursuit scenes by a decidedly inept military. It's even more melancholy talking head nonsense than a Bergman film, but without the heft. Is anyone really surprised this came on the heels of the also Abrams scripted regarding Henry? Jamie Lee is game to play put upon Midwestern white trash, but is simply too savvy, sharp-witted, and strong a woman to appropriately fill that particular bill, which probably should have gone to a Renee Zellweger or one of the Tilly sisters. Oh, I actually, you know, I'm glad you remind me of this one. I actually enjoyed this. I, I saw it in the theater, and later on it was on HBO for, like, all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's how they were. <laughs> but uh, I enjoyed Mel in this, and uh, we should do a Mel show. <laughs> um, you know... <sighs> we'll get the ADL against us, <laughs> considering what happened with Mel. <laughs> JDL? Uh, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> but... You no, know, no, I like I like Mel Gibson, and and when he's on, he's on. That's true. And, you know, this was a this was a enjoyable film. I anything that involves time travel. In this case, he was cryogenically frozen, then unfrozen, and then has to deal with shit that happens. You know, years later. It it's not a great movie, but I thought it was a sweet film, and. So I don't hate it. You're talking about people being frozen and coming back later. I used to have a whole bunch of friends that seriously called me all the time Rip Van Winkle. Because <laughs> it's like, yeah, you're a character right out of the 70s or something. What the hell is this? <laughs> We're in like the 90s. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, True Lies, 94. Yeah. Is there anything you want to tell me before we start? Yeah, I'm going to kill you pretty soon. First, I'm going to use you as a human shield. Then I'm going to kill that god over there with that surgical device. And then I was thinking about breaking your neck. Weird all-star spy comedy from big-budget blowhard James Cameron. Like Schwarzenegger's other film in this sort of subgenre, Last Action Hero, it's more played for laughs than ever is a spy action film. And despite how it looks at first glance, it's really just about a husband and wife leading very separate lives and keeping secrets from each other. Arnold, who we did a whole show on, is a secret agent G-man sidling up to sexy art dealer come arms dealer Tia Carrere to nab her Arab terrorist pals. Boring-ass wife Curtis is the office worker and housewife managing birthday parties, water cooler gossip, and cooking dinners he often doesn't show up for, which he covers up for by pretending to be a traveling salesman. When he and his buddy Tom Arnold begin to suspect she's having an affair with an apparent rival government spook, sleazy Bill Paxton, they close in on him only to find he's just a seedy used car salesman bullshitting lonely heart housewife types into fucking him. As Jamie Lee appears to be really aroused by getting pulled into apparent spying a la Kate Jackson and Scarecrow Mrs. King, Arnold and Arnold kidnap her, get her to confess that she hadn't actually slept with Paxton and that she still loves hubby Arnold, and pull her into a fake spy operation where she's supposed to be a hooker, but only with a client who just likes to watch girls play semi-clothed stripper. She does a ridiculous routine that's half unsexy stripper and half perfect aerobics routine for the guy, who's actually Arnold sitting in shadow with a tape recorder, and they probably both get roofied and kidnapped by Carrera and friends. Now pissed off, realizing that he had a secret life all along, the two squabble until Arnold escapes and she gets to see him in action, finally beating the crap out of Carrera herself. 
In the end, the two are spies together in all as well. You can see that they were shooting for the far more subversive and lovable Mr. and Mrs. Smith with this, particularly the early sequences where the two are a bored couple unaware of each other's hitman for hire status. But this is nowhere near that level of outsider statement. It's a James Cameron blockbuster designed to get middle American soccer moms cheering and their husbands happy over, if not Curtis's somewhat awkward and not incredibly sexy dance, than the fetching posh spice-style Gucci rap and Victoria's Secret undies she sports from that scene forward. Once she finally films up and gets interesting, Curtis is very watchable, and Arnold comes off rather sweet and charming for what was likely the first time on screen unless you count the far sillier twins. Odd footnote, Buffy's bad slayer, Elijah Dushku, is the daughter here, obviously somewhat younger than she was in the decade-defining Joss Whedon series. It's fun, just a sort of monsters to Mr. and Mrs. Smith's Adams Family. Really no comparison, but two very different takes on some very similar material. It's definitely watchable, and once she starts femming up, it's definitely pretty good. I love this movie. <laughs> I think True Lies is one of Arnold's best movies. And I... Um, it certainly paints him in the most likable light for the average person. Yeah, yeah. It paints him in a very likable light. It also... Yeah, he's a big guy. And he's he's a he was a bodybuilder. He was like this whole history of like big lumbering. And that I like this because Cameron, <laughs> God bless his soul, he... Yeah, I don't know why he never worked with him again. Because he managed to... Well, T2. He, he met you too, right? Terminator 2. He, he, well, yeah, Terminator 2, but I'm saying this is after that. After this. But he managed to make Arnold look like this light-footed guy. And, you know, like, I believed him as, like, an agent. Doing the Tom Cruise thing. <laughs> you know, and you know what? It worked for me. So, the thing with Jamie Lee... Yeah, that whole thing with uh, Tom Arnold and, and uh, you know, that was kind of... That kind of... Yeah, I never big issue with that but <laughs> that scene that you thought was okay was like man did it get her eyes out of me <laughs> it's like she was purposely super awkward so it wasn't like a good stripper dance and all of a sudden she breaks into like like i said it was a routine from perfect all over again she's doing this aerobic sort of stuff i'm like okay <laughs> yeah I'm like, like, oh yeah it's so like, hot so, like, hmm. so, so your wife comes home after a long day at work and you're on the computer bah, 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 bah. And your wife breaks into a scene like that. What are you going to do? Of course. I don't want to hear about it. So, <laughs> I didn't say that. So, no, I didn't see. But uh, Jamie Lee, let's see. That scene alone makes this film like a, a top 20. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't go anywhere no, near I, that, no, but it is likable. It's a fun, enjoyable yeah. uh Big, big budget. Um, Very mainstream film. Yeah. Mainstream picture. And, uh, you know, and then it was nice. Like, at, when they finally, when he finally says, like, I'm a secret agent, you know, and all kinds of shit like that. Yeah, it's like the Pina Colada song. It's like, oh, that's what I wanted all along. Okay, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> nah, but then he, you know, he saves her and they, they save each other. And it, it's a huge fucking thing. I tell you, one big mistake James Cameron made is never, never making a sequel to this and signing off the rights to one of these streaming services to make a uh, sequel where people would never heard of, uh, which is probably going to appear by the time, before the time we could we actually go live with this thing. Um, oh, Charlton Heston. Yes, that guy. 
He does. He's actually the head of the spy ring. Yes. With an eye patch, like a Nick Fury type. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Tia Carrera is still looking hot before she had so much Botox shot into her face. Yeah, this is back in the Wayne's World days. Yeah, now she looks like a fucking <laughs> balloon. Uh, yeah. I, I actually. But, you know, if you did like this film. And you want a more subversive take. You know, like I said, The Addams Family compared to The Monsters. Definitely check out Mr. and Mrs. Smith. That's one of my favorite films. Which is a lot later. Yeah, I guess it was about a decade later, maybe. A decade later. We saw it in the theaters. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Fierce Creatures. Yes. Fierce Creatures, 1997. How much bigger does he want to get? Well, there aren't any limits. He wants growth. Presumably he's aware of Dr. E.F. Schumacher's concept of limited resources, or as Jean-Paul Sartre puts it, any sensible questions? Now look, the zoo has to make money. It does. Yes, but not enough. Enough for what? Mr. McCain requires a 20% return on capital from each and every asset in his empire. Why 20%? Because he does, that's why. This satire of corporate greed and its complete dissociation from reality, profits must rise every quarter of every year, even if it means canning half the workers, slave-driving those who remain to covering for all those fired, and continually dropping benefits and supplies to fake profit for the shareholders, brings together the entire main cast of A Fish Called Wanda ten years on. Monty Python veterans John Cleese and Michael Palin are the newly appointed corporate hatchet man and one of the zookeepers, respectively. Kevin Klein of uh, Whoopi Goldberg shows Soap Dish pulls a dual role as the new owner and his horny son. And Jamie Lee is kind of smoking in a shoulder-length red shag as the planner designer of the new zoo of an intended franchise chain of such, who keeps half-stripping down and cock-teasing Boss Klein before eventually falling for him, mostly because other women seem to keep throwing themselves at him. Works every time, eh? The problem is this, how do we cut costs and attract more visitors? I'll tell you exactly what draws the biggest audiences from all over the world, violence. Sylvester Stallone did not get where he is today by playing in Jane Austen. Therefore, in this zoo, we will require animals that are potentially violent, fierce animals. All the rest, I'm afraid, will have to go. The zoo employees keep trying to convince Cleese not to move in this idiotic direction in various absurdist ways, until a fairly nihilistic black humor denouement that results in a sort of happy ending for all. Is this one your favorite? Yes, I like impressed of all the small mammaries. Mammals. Some of the sponsorship gimmicks are a bit sexist. Sorry, Floridian slit, or slut. Like Wanda, it's not funny, but you can appreciate the biting satire, particularly in terms of dialogue like the bits quoted earlier. I like a fish called Wanda better. I I didn't warm to this one as much. Uh, I was looking forward to fierce creatures, and then when I saw it, I decided that it just... It's a completely different animal. Yeah, yeah, it just wasn't the same for me yeah it just didn't move me so 1998 halloween h20 20 years later meddling with the silently unspectacular attempt to bring the franchise back to its original ongoing storyline by friday the 13th part 2 and 3's steve minor also of warlock and house who you think would have known how to craft an effective slasher. Instead, you get soundtrack jump scares at inappropriate moments, television-style cinematography and direction, and a whole lot of stunt casting. The big draw of this one was getting Jamie Lee to star in the same movie with her mother, icy Tony Curtis X Janet Lee, of The Fog from a John Carpenter show, Grand Slam from her Klaus Kinski show, The Manchurian Candidate from a Frank Sinatra show, and both The Vikings and Houdini from a Tony Curtis show. But she's barely in it as the secretary to now private school headmistress Jamie Lee, who's fled her past traumas by moving out west to California and changing her name. Of course, Michael, who's burgled Dr. Loomis's house to find his files on his sister, trails her cross country to continue his incestuous edible-style love-hate shtick with sis, and the expected mayhem ensues until Jamie Lee finally takes the fight to her pursuer. The stunt casting wasn't limited in appearing Curtis with Lee. 
a beefy LL Cool J, a proto-fresh prince whose debut in substandard rap-battling schools against a far more credible Cool Moldy were much mocked in the hip-hop community. But like Smith became oddly popular with Midwestern white bread girls and led to a career of sorts in television, appears as a rent-a-cop with aspirations to be a tacky romance novel writer. And several TV stars of no appreciable or worthwhile credits like Josh Hartnett, Michelle Williams, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Bo Billingsley, not to mention Alan Arkin's far less talented or successful son Adam of Under the Rainbow fame, all clutter up the screen for no appreciable reason. It's overly slick and oddly tame for a slasher, and it feels like Minor wasn't even trying at this point. It would take two more decades before someone managed to get what he was ostensibly shooting for here right, and we'll get to that far more worthwhile recent trilogy shortly. What's your take on this one? I, I don't, I, you know, in retrospect, I don't think it's as bad as a lot of people think, or as bad as you think. I I think it's pretty decent, uh, put it this way, I've seen worse. <laughs> yeah, like the one that follows it. <laughs> no, no, I, I just think that... Uh, I watch this and it's like, you know what? There's some there's some interesting things going on here that I, I didn't mind, so I didn't hate it. So, 1999, Virus. Virus. Donald Sutherland, who we did a whole show on, is the badly pseudo-Irish accented captain of a cargo ship who loses his uninsured cargo in a storm. He runs across an abandoned Russian trawler and decides to board it and raid it for salvage. But rather than this being some sort of awesome horror of the zombies or Matango-style horror film setup, it's a lame sub-hardware Thing, where aliens beam down and dispatch killer drone robots to kill all humans because we're seen as an organic virus. The once stunning Joanna Pacula of Lamberto Bava's Puzzle, The Kiss, Warlock the Armageddon, and Seagal's Mark for Death is barely recognizable here. And you get the other Baldwin nobody cares about, not Mega Cult of Steven from our Firefly show, but William, whose biggest credit was the Joe Esterhaus Sharon Stone stinker Sliver, <laughs> and, and especially Butch Jamie Lee Curtis here as an ex-naval officer turned low-rank gob for hire. Directed by a one-credit director and multi-credit SFX man, John Bruno, this is extremely derivative and boring, like the Michael Crichton-scripted Sphere from a show on Crichton, crossed with some blowsy James Cameron crap. There's nearly zero suspense or build, and it doesn't work as either dystopic sci-fi or sci-fi horror. It's just lame audience-pandering bullshit, and therefore simply doesn't work. Jamie Lee herself called this film the worst of any film she's done, and literally mentions trotting it out for bad movie night get-togethers. That's a piece-of-shit movie, she said. It's an unbelievably bad movie, just bad from the bottom. (laughs) So, what's your take? Well, Jamie Jamie Lee Curtis says so, then I'm going to agree. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a pro- yeah, it's okay if you're watching it. You never saw it before, but it's if you it's like a, that kind of thing, watch Sphere. Go watch Alien. You know, there's so many better films of the same type. There are so many better films. Taylor Panama, did you see that? No, I did not. That's really good. It's a John Borman film, Excalibur, oh, really? et, cetera, et, cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this one, <laughs> how am I going to do this? You didn't watch this one. <laughs> Uh, so John Borman, who also did Zardoz, I believe. Yes, <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis is married to Jeffrey Rush as a uh, a British uh, attaché for uh, the uh, Panama Embassy, and so Pierce Brosnan is an agent, of course, and you know he's brought in there, and they want him to turn around and subserve this uh, next coming election. It's based on a John Lake Carre novel, book, which I never read. So Pierce has to, Pierce Brosnan has to, like, uh, romance Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. But she has a hidden past. <gasps> really? 
And so part of that has to do with using that information against Jeffrey Rush. I like that really good. It's a good old-fashioned spy thing. And uh, she's kind of hot. And so, you know, good stuff there with uh, Pierce and Jamie Lee. You know, not a great film, but it's a good old-fashioned kind of spy movie. Where are you going next? Halloween Resurrection? Halloween Resurrection, yes, 2002. Talk about a bait and switch. Rick Rosenthal, who directed the better part of the Carpenter took over the extensive reshoot, the original hospital horror, Halloween 2, kicks off the first 15 minutes of this one with a killer throwback and recreation of his much earlier Opus Magnus. Unfortunately, that's where it all changes. We're told that Jamie Lee killed the wrong man trying to take out Michael in the last film, so she's locked up in a rather hospital-looking nuthouse. Michael shows up stalking and killing his way through the dark and empty nighttime corridors until she leads him up to the rooftop and nearly kills him, but in a moment of doubt after killing the wrong guy last time, apparently, he turns the tables and ganks her off the side, killing her, which they obviously forgot and or retconned 16 years later. While this short sequence is a fuck of a lot better than the awkward and soapy H2O, the rest of this disaster flips to a reality TV shtick a la the real world Big Brother or whatever the hell shit the intellectually challenged waste their few remaining brain cells absorbing themselves into nowadays. Worse, these obnoxious post-teenagers don't just act obnoxiously towards each other and the rest of the world for posterity, but film much of it in that awful shaky cam, shifting quality, cheap camera footage GoPro shit that was so popular after the abysmal Blair Witch Project. Let's follow a group of foul-mouthed, unreliable shitheads as they wander around the woods and panic over nothing. Instant horror classic, my ass. And the stunt casting continues with crackhead rapper Buster Rhymes, mm-hmm. annoying model-come-reality TV star Tyra Banks, and the barbershop film Sean Patrick Thomas. Oh, joy. I don't know why Rosenthal just didn't attempt a full-length revisitation of what he and Carpenter did so well in Halloween 2, because that first quarter hour promised a much, much better film than the pandering to the lowest common denominator horseshit that followed it. Take that 15 minutes away, this film's a piece of shit. Yeah, the beginning is very promising, and then the, I'm not sure what happened with this. Maybe it was uh, studio tampering or production tampering, but it was like at some point in time, it was like, what's going on here? And yeah, it just didn't happen. Freaky Friday, next? Yes. I don't know why you never wear these. They're cute. Yeah, if you're selling Bibles. And what is this? My patients are not going to pay 150 hours to get therapy from a stripper. This remake of the 1976 Jodie Foster Barbara Harris of Family Plot film features Curtis and famed Disney child star junkie and career burnout Lindsay Lohan <laughs> in the same roles as an uptight mother and hip daughter who switched places a la George Burns and his no-name grandson in 1988's 18 again. It's a common trope in tween cinema. And while I'm apologizing, let me say to the whole car how truly sorry I am for being such an insane control freak all the time. This time, Curtis's mom is a widowed shrink about to marry again, and of course, Lohan doesn't want any of it. She's also got a lot of problems, like a bratty brother, vindictive teacher determined to fail her, a best friend turned enemy giving her all kinds of shit, and her mom cock-blocking her pop-punk band getting a showcase at House of Blues because it's the same night as the wedding rehearsal. But a matronly Rosalind Chow, a 70s TV regular from Nicholas Hammond's Spider-Man's Chinese Web 2-parter. She was high. What are you kidding? She was back then, yeah. Oh. Uh, the, the show in Cassidy, Parker Stevens and Hardy Boys, Curse of the Jade Kwan Yin, among many others, interrupts a fight between Curtis and Lohan at a restaurant by forcing them both to eat fortune cookies that show what it's like to walk a mile in another girl's moccasins. It's great we're getting married, even though my husband died. It's great how quickly I've been able to get over it. You can guess the rest. Chances are you've seen it all before. The hip young Lohan turns Curtis's stiff mom into a much better dresser. Wow, God bless you. Guys, there's a terrible slight 
<laughs> the hip young Lohan turns Curtis's stiff mom into a much better dresser and far more likable to all concerned, while Curtis learns a lot of real-life shit about a daughter she never understood. Mark Harmon of Beyond the Poseidon Adventures on the Michael Caine show. <laughs> it's the confused groom to be. Jesus, you're right. <laughs> yeah. Cat here getting to you? Uh, so <laughs> director Mark Waters followed Lohan along to the next film, Mean Girls, but his only further notable film was the atrocious Jennifer Garner Matthew McConaughey stinker, Ghosts of Girlfriends Past. It's a fun little film, despite what you might think. I always kind of like this one. Plus, Lohan's band's millennial pop punk act has some pretty decent songs, and they tack in similar-minded acts like Simple Plan to fill out the soundtrack. I actually used to enjoy a lot of that Crazy Taxi, Jet Grind, Radio-style, Mallrat, emo, faux punk back when, and it still makes for an above-average listen, particularly when paired with such a likable, if admittedly tween-oriented comedy. Jamie Lee and Lohan both pull off the duo roles more than admirably. I always like this film, believe it or not. Are we talking about Freaky Friday? Yeah, Freaky Friday. You like this? I always did. I know, it's hard to believe, right? <laughs> you are very surprising, young man. <laughs> That's me, I keep uh, guessing. Yeah, I, I I don't know what to say about this, but yeah, it's a remake of nearly a movie, and I think they're doing it again. I think Jamie Lee Curtis mentioned the other day on Facebook, of all things, that we're doing another one. I'm like, okay, God bless you. Um, I hope it's not with Lohan. <laughs> She's kind of a mess these days. <laughs> I have no idea whatever happened to her. Well, I know what happened to her, but... But, uh, yeah. It's okay. I remember watching it. I remember it being okay. I... It's a tween comedy, so I can totally get why everybody's like, oh, this sucks, you know, who cares? But I enjoyed it, and I was dead. Yeah. I, yeah, me and tween comedies. Yeah. But you were saying about how uh, you thought Russell Chow was still hot in this one. <laughs> yeah. Wow. She's uh, definitely middle-aged in this one, let's put it that way. <laughs> I was like, wow. I used to be hot for her, and I was like, eh. Yeah, but, but I, I like Asian milfs. What do you want? <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> uh, I can't wait till we get to, uh, what was that Michelle Yeoh film? Uh, yesterday, today, tomorrow. Oh, no, every, everything all together all at once. So we'll Ooh. be there soon. So... <laughs> So she does a bunch of kids' films, Christmas with the Cranks, The Kid and I, Beverly Hills Chihuahua, The Little Engine That Could, you know, all this crap, Veronica Mars, which I didn't see, Spare Parts, Hondros. I don't know if you wanted to cover any of that stuff. Uh, let's go to Halloween, right? Halloween, 2018. Could it be that one monster has created another? And although the iron bars and barbed wire that separate them are both strong and sharp, the metaphysical lines are blurred and slight. A David Gordon Green of no appreciable credits otherwise kicks off a trilogy that attempts to rehabilitate the troubled franchise, which hasn't been in good hands since Halloween 2, which we discussed in our John Carpenter show, though the wholly unrelated 3, Season of the Witch, was the real end of the series to all intents and purposes. After the typically awful Rob Zombie diptych, the guy could barely pull off mediocre 90s industrial new metal, forget about filmmaking, Green, with the blessing of Carpenter, set out to, and by modern Harris standards, somewhat succeeds in, revitalizing the series and the slasher film per se with its return to the original storyline, and for the most part, an actual 80s slasher approach to the material. They're all nice guys till they get you pregnant, and then you gotta drive in their pickup trucks, and you clean their guns, and you get high with them, and then you all get fat. Myers is once again transported out of the nuthouse and escapes, while take-no-shit Grandma Curtis, who lives in a reasonably secured gated rural estate and practices target shooting, tries to encourage her teenage grandkid, and Andy Matichak, also of no appreciable credits beyond this trilogy, and fend off her annoying yuppie daughter who hates her for raising her paranoid, but prepared for when shit gets ugly, Ant-Man's annoying ex, Judy Greer. Use it for whatever your heart desires. I'll save it for college then. Fuck college. Go somewhere. Go to Mexico. 
See if she even gets just how far a college degree will get you in today's world. It's important to break away from your parents' bullshit biases and religion of any stripe. But beyond that, honestly, save your damn money. Get some real life experience. Don't waste your time. It doesn't help a fucking bit, and I am proof positive of that. Michael kills some backwards gun nut and his metrosexually inclined kid whose shotgun training only results in shooting the damn doctor in charge of Michael, who thankfully offs both father and son, the latter on screen. Then a pair of self-aggrandizing British dickheads trying to exploit Curtis and her PTSD for ratings in their true crime podcast. Seriously. And again, Michael does exactly what we all wanted to do and kills them off rather appropriately in a public shitter. Eventually, Curtis, with the help of the recalcitrant Greer and Matichak, manages to wound and trap Michael in a safe room and burn the house down around his ears. This is the usual ambiguous cliffhanger ending. We out of here. Don't get the wrong idea here. Like all modern cinema, this isn't the pimple on the ass of the 70s classic that arguably, alongside the subsequent Friday the 13th, but more likely single-handedly, popularized and kicked off the entire slasher genre. The score isn't the tout, highly effective minimalist synth master where Carpenter was known for filling his early films with, the cinematography is digital, drab, and flat. The teen's quirky, if not downright odd-looking. What the fuck is wrong with Matchak's Matthew Sweet-looking buddy making light of her family's trauma of blowing up pumpkins with an M80 before kissing a classmate just to bust his hump in the hallway a half minute later? Is this supposed to be normal high school hijinks nowadays? But compare this to the hundreds of crap pseudo-slashes floating around since Scream brought the genre back to popular attention. Do you see the immediate differences in nearly every other aspect? It feels like the real deal. It isn't, but like those cubic zirconia diamonds they used to sell on syndicated TV, it's a damn convincing imitation. I did like this one quite a bit. Oh, I did like this quite a bit, too. You have to be wary going into this kind of thing. Like, you know, we're going we're gonna to revive the franchise. Yes, I've heard this before. Yeah, from Rob Zombie. <laughs> oh, we're not even touching those pictures. But interestingly enough, Jamie Lee Curtis never appeared in those. Yes. Pieces of shit. She knew better. Pieces of film. <laughs> this should burn forever. I will put the fucking fire fluid on. I would do that with Rob Zombie's entire career, but whatever. <laughs> well, look what happened with the monsters. Oh, we're making a we're making a thing of the the monsters, monsters, and apparently didn't get it theatrical. And then it goes to directly to Netflix, and nobody watches it. <laughs> Can you blame yeah, them? Okay. <laughs> Anyway, sidebar aside, um, this is pretty good. I think it's pretty good. You know, it's it's not what you would think, but it's a pretty good kind of attempt to, like... For a post-early 90s slasher, it's really, really good. Yeah. Did you see Knives Out? Actually, yes, but let me get to this one first. An acceptable loss. Joe Chappelle, a TV director who also gave us the off-divided Halloween 6 Curse of Michael Myers, drops one of his few films... And while well-acted, it's a no-name, no-budget pay cable affair, probably sold entirely on getting Curtis's name attached. The lead is Atika Sumter, whose biggest credit is the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, and Jamie Lee is the former vice president and current straight-up president of the United States. There are elements within the White House and Intelligence Committee who will use every resource at their disposal to make sure this never sees the light of day. Apparently, Sumter was national security advisor to Curtis when she was VP overseeing a military operation that bombed an Arabic city, and her change to foreign policy adjunct professor proves as difficult as you'd expect. Student protests, a weird stalker with ties to said city, and government types who keep dropping in to ensure she won't talk any more than she already has. In the end, the government takes her and those she's been in contact with out to cover their tracks, but it turns out she shared the tooth with other folks who will get the facts out there. Yeah, sure, sounds more like a bad TV plot than a movie. 
and the government paranoia of black ops monster in every bed and inside every closet was played out decades ago. If you were president at this moment, would you be willing to personally authorize a nuclear strike that would kill countless men and women and children? The whole point of a deterrent is that our enemies need to know that we are prepared to use it. They need to understand that we will punish their fathers and mothers, husbands and wives and children. Everyone they love and cherish will be held accountable. A lot of the film is told in flashbacks, which is where Curtis comes in, oddly enough spending most of her time trying to convince her advisor rather than the other way around. She's hard, cold, and manipulative, proving that she spent some time studying Republicans in power. For her part, Sumter is not only a decent actress, but really quite attractive bit of eye candy, making it surprisingly easy to sit through this otherwise entirely turgid bit of sub-alias W-era nonsense. So, I gather you didn't see it? No, I didn't. I didn't even know it existed until now. So, like you said, Knives Out 2019. Uh, Rian Johnson, whose only credit anyone ever heard of was Star Wars The Last Jedi, directs this old Dark House-style murder mystery that's supposed to double as comedy. There's an oddball mix of actual famous people and unknowns, ranging from folks like Chris Evans, the vegan baddie from Scott Pilgrim, Fox's Human Torch, and Disney's Captain America, Daniel Craig of Tomb Raider, and James Bond since the Casino Royale remake, <laughs> Don Johnson of our sci-fi in the 70s shows A Boy and His Dog and Dead Bang, and Christopher Plummer of The Spiral Staircase, The Silent Partner, and High Point from our Jackie Bissett, Elliot Gould, and Richard Harris shows, to schmoes like Michael Shannon, Kim Fowley from the Runaways movie, and Tony Collette, whose biggest credits were Emma with Gwyneth Paltrow and Triple X, The Return of Xander Cage. Curtis is the eldest daughter of the murdered patriarch who's both a cuckolded wife and the mother of Evans. Honestly, I went through the rest of this film and I was just like, what the fuck is going on? Do I care? It was that bad that I didn't write anything else. So what's your take? I like this. What are you, crazy? <laughs> oh, no, boy. I like this because it reminded me of... Um... What? Oh, my gosh. Well, oh, Ryan Johnson did Looper, which was quite a good film, uh, with uh, uh, Bruce Willis and Joseph Gordon-Lewitt. And The Last Jedi was a pretty good picture, I actually like. So, I like the cast of this. And and it reminded me of a Peter Sellers' Pink Panther film without... Without the humor? <laughs> without, without Inspector Clouseau being such a bombastic idiot. <laughs> and I liked Daniel Craig being something else. And I thought this cast was good. Oh my gosh, you did not like this movie. No, it was terrible. Uh, well, I didn't think it was terrible. So I enjoyed this film. I highly recommend it. I look forward to the sequel. <laughs> oh, and I should also say, since I brought up the sci-fi of the 70s show with the Don Johnson thing there, before you had mentioned about Charlton Heston being in True Lies as the Nick Fury-esque head of the CIA yeah. or whatever, and I forgot or didn't get a chance to mention, we also did a lot of Charlton Heston movies in that same show, because I know we did like Silent Green, and, and we also did a Planet of the Apes show, Go Ape, so we covered Charlton quite a bit for his sci-fi stuff. So anyway, Halloween Kills, Halloween Kills right. 2021 idiosyncratically featuring some seriously weird-looking kids in a flashback to 1978. What the fuck is up with a supposed bully that looks like Chucky fucked Simply Red? This sequel centers on a quartet of 40-something child survivors of Michael's original Rampage, one of whom is Weird Science, 16 Candles, and The Breakfast Club's lovable nerd Anthony Michael Hall, who are sick of the bullshit and form a lynch mob to end Michael once and for all. Nicely enough, Green actually digs up a few cast members from the 1978 film for minor roles here, including Carpenter regular Charles Cyphers of Assault in Precinct 13, The Fog, and the first two Halloweens from our John Carpenter show, plus Death Wish 2 and Borderline from our Bronson show, and A Force of One from our Chuck Norris show. But the only real high points of this almost tangential and obvious middle chapter are Hall, who really takes it to the unkillable son of a bitch baseball bat in hand, 
And Greer's final attempt to do the same, though the film ends with an unsurprising reversal. There was another film in the series to get to, after all. It's an interesting side story and oddly reminiscent of the aforementioned Assault on Precinct 13 more than it is a Halloween film per se. And Curtis is barely in it, being laid up in hospital throughout. But like the other two green Halloween films, it's more than watchable and practically stellar by modern slasher standards. But of the three, it's by far the least. Uh, isn't Halloween ends where she's in the hospital? No, Halloween kills she's in the hospital. It happened at the end of the first one, and she's like laid up through this whole thing. He doesn't go after her in the hospital. She's just there, so she's barely in the movie. Okay. Uh, no, I enjoyed it. I, I have nothing critically. Yeah, there's nothing bad to say about it. Yeah, no, I enjoy it. So everything, everywhere. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Twenty. It's actually this year, 2022. No more Google eyes. 80s and 90s Hong Kong action star that Michelle Yeoh of Tomorrow Never Dies from a trio of James Bond shows, in a role rather unbelievably written for Jackie Chan, is the first-generation Chinese in America with a lousy life. She lives in a cramped... <laughs> Godzilla's commenting. She lives in a cramped shithole walk-up apartment above the laundromat she micromanages, beleaguered by the IRS, weird customers, the fact that her daughter is gay, and the fact that this is an issue because her demanding geriatric father is living with them, and she doesn't want to give him a heart attack by telling her she is. How is your airplane? Your Chinese is getting worse every time we talk. The ubiquitous James Hong, who we've addressed many a time in this show, is the messy-haired, balding old grouch who disowned her for running off with her now husband to start said laundromat, and he's just fucking impossible. In a way, the whole situation is her own damn fault for moving the old bastard in with them despite everything, and to be honest, for staying with a guy whose idea of making it is to micromanage a little bug of fucking laundromat. She doesn't even realize in the midst of the daily insanity and yelling at all and sundry trying to hold it all together that even said hubby who got her into this situation is filing for divorce, but can't get a word in edgewise to serve her the papers. Oh yeah, and this is supposed to be an absurdist comedy. Hate to break it to you guys, but Buñuel, or even Steve Gerber for that matter, you sure as fuck ain't. The faux absurdism kicks in with Hubby corners her in an elevator, but rather than serving papers, he downloads weird apps on her phone, it's I love Persona, sticks bizarre Apple earbuds in her ears, and writes her some quickie instructions, which she promptly forgets, acting like nothing happened. Shh, not now, unless you can help with my taxes. Jamie Lee is almost unrecognizable as the only white face in the film. Well, the daughter's girlfriend is half Mexican, so. A lampshade haircut sporting Walmart greeter dressing grouchy old tax auditor trying to repossess their place and job. Yeesh. Written and directed by two unrelated guys who share the surname Daniel, whose collective career is limited to making music videos for people you've never even heard of, this one is apparently a huge hit for some reason. Maybe too many superhero movies and a lot of mixing weed and mushrooms wasn't just a lifestyle limited to the two of them. The end result is like Stephen Chow dropped a highball of LSD and crystal meth, all psychotic Bigfoot slapstick humor lensed by a crackhead. You have so many goals you never finished, dreams you never followed. You're capable of anything because you're so bad at everything. To attempt to make a scrap of sense out of this film after the first half hour of its two and a half hour running time is a futile, almost Sisyphean endeavor. Apparently, Yo's daughter is the big bad, pushed by an alternate universe Yo into dimension hopping, so she's pissed off and crazy enough to rip off Claremont and Cockrum, I mean, unleash the McCran crystal and loses contained neutron star to destroy the universe, uh, the everything bagel and black hole to destroy the universe. I know, theft from old, far superior 1970s and early 80s comic stories without crediting the authors is de rigueur these days, but let's not talk about the Disney Marvel Cinematic Universe anymore. Anyway, Yo is apparently the big failure version of all possible Yo's. Oh damn, now we're talking not just Claremont, but the Allens, Moore, and Davis in their entire Captain Britain and Excalibur series. These people stop stealing entire stories and conceits? And were they meta-stealing from Disney steal all these stories and Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness? Damn, stealing from blatant thieves, that's amazing. So anyway, 
because Yo is the biggest loser of all Yo's, she somehow is the one hope to take down the most crazy and evil of all possible Yo's daughters. You can't even say this crap without lighting one up. Oh, and it's actually pandering to the Hallmark crowd even after all this, because the big theme under this full existentialist pseudo-absurdist nihilism is family reconciliation. I shit you not. Well, that's a huge thumbs down for sheer delusion. What is this, the fucking Joy Luck Club? She turned out to be stubborn, aimless, a mess, just like me. But it's okay that she's a mess, because the universe gave her someone kind, patient, and forgiving to make up for all she lacks. Yep, it's all one big bait and switch. About the only thing you could say for this, other than its comic book movie watchability, despite its despairing, miserable overtones and stupid core message, is that by crossing kitchen sink drama with Hong Kong wirework kung fu and all the stolen comic book plot and ideas, it gives Yo the chance to flex her dramatic chops more than usual and return to old form somewhat with a few action sequences, but don't expect Super Cop in the line of duty or Tomorrow Never Dies here. She's an old lady at this point. It's by no means what you'd say an awful film, simply because it's watchable and a head-scratching who-the-fuck-wrote-this way, but it sure as hell ain't a good film either. As someone jumping across the room to land on a butt plug, which remains hanging out of his ass for kung fu powers, is absolutely hilarious to you. You're the right audience for this. Otherwise, you're on your own. What's your take? (laughs) What am I going to do with you? So, Michelle Yeoh (laughs) is like the godhead of action cinema women. So, somebody decided to, let's make a movie centered around her, but make it really bizarre and fucking weird in the uh, Jodorowsky way. <laughs> like, uh, you know, yeah, that Jodorowsky. And, uh, the Holy Mountain makes a lot more sense, people. Yeah, like the Holy Mountain and maybe Kubrick. And, and it's like... 2001, yeah, we did a Kubrick show. And let's, let's put all this shit in like a washing machine, like put it on spin. And so this is a very strange, weird, fucked up movie. But you know what? Michelle Yeoh has still not. Her, her biggest crossover besides Super Cop 3. Was Tomorrow Never Dies. Was Tomorrow Never Dies. And she should have been huge here. And she could have been. But, you know, powers that be drop things because she's Asian. Yeah, that's true. So um, after a couple of really good promising roles, Crazy Rich Asians, which I actually liked. And a couple other things. Oh, how about Crouching Tiger? Wasn't she in that too? Yeah, Crouching Tiger, but that was before Crazy Rich Asians. And she's not old. I do her in a minute. Are you crazy? <laughs> um, Michelle Yo gets two guys who are crazy about her to make a picture about her, sort of. And in the most bizarre, you can't fucking imagine this kind of shit. It's way too long. I get it. And... Uh, it's just got too much going on, alternative universes and stuff. And, and Jamie Lee Curtis is in this as kind of sometimes dowdry. They even give her a CG pop belly that disappears when she turns into a kung fu fighter or whatever. I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, I know. They, they were trying to fuck, fuck around with a bunch of stuff. This is a very strange movie. To say the least. To say the least. But I, I like this movie because, like, who's going to give? An aging kung fu action star from the 80s and 90s, a, a quality picture like this. And yeah, it's weird and it's got issues, but God bless somebody did it. You know, like it's about time. 
it's funny that you say it was about her because like not really maybe that one section where if you're in one of those universes she's a movie star or something yeah. but this would be like about her if she was a fucking loser had a terrible life and kids that hate her and a lousy family that's gonna dump her and everything is just downer and then it's like the whole answer to this film the underlying thing number one is that nothing matters in the fucking universe and it's all miserable but family reconciliation will save the day I'm like fuck you but that's and, a sponsored thing with our movies family uh, I Mommy. love that James Hong. <laughs> James Hong is uh, the grumpy old dad. Yeah, is grumpy old dad because people forgot that guy used to work in porn back in the day. <laughs> and he's supposed to be the guy that's all pissed off and you know the big secret that the daughter is gay. Like they can't say anything because it'll upset him. Uh, like really, James uh, Hong? I don't think so. <laughs> so Halloween ends. Next? Yes. So Halloween ends is our closer. It just came out and actually it was good because it came out in theaters, but also it was uh, streaming and I got to see it streaming, which was fantastic. So, do you want to do it, or do you want me to? The final film we're discussing tonight is, in fact, her most recent work just released, Halloween Ends. You need to find someone where you can let go. That makes you want to rip off your shirt and show your fucking tits and say, you know what? Let's go. The film really centers on a Rohan Campbell, a weird-looking fuck who, true to many a slasher film, Friday the 13th Part 6 comes immediately to mind, but it's common to the Halloween series and many others, is the town outcast who everyone hates, mocks, and ostracizes for accidentally causing the death of a brat he babysit for. The kid locked him in the crapper, and the parents walk in the door just as he kicks the door open, sending the brat who's leaning on the door laughing straight over the railing. And Andy Matichak, whose sole credits appear to be getting stalked in the last two films of this particular trilogy of remakes, is this sort of cutish granddaughter of Curtis, and apparently daughter of child actress turned smoking hottie Danielle Harris, who is her daughter in Halloween 4 and 5, an aspiring nurse who gets the hots for Campbell as a fellow haunted outsider, but despite both Curtis and Madshack showing empathy for the guy, ongoing bullying and bullshit, plus a chance meeting with Michael Myers, who's just hanging around in a sewer drain for no apparent reason, sending the kid over the edge. Inspired by Myers, he starts offing people who gave him shit. Not only an old lush who gets grabby, and the kids he refused to buy booze for that started tailing around to beat on him, but the local DJ who got mouthy and even the annoying zennial slut banging the old yuppie doctor for a promotion over Matichak. Being a swell guy, Michael Myers helps him out, and the two tag team killing everybody. In the end, both killers are toast in a way that really doesn't leave the long-running series and its two runs of remakes open for another sequel or revival. Directed by a David Gordon Green, whose only real credits are this trilogy, it's a flawed but by modern horror standards fairly laudable attempt to recapture exactly what the appeal was in the early to mid-80s slasher, dragging things kicking and screaming back to the earliest Carpenter-directed or salvaged iterations of the Halloween series. Hell, they even played my all-time favorite band, The Cramps, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, probably the first time we've heard the ghoulish rockabilly purists on screen since Return of the Living Dead back in 1985, so that was a definite plus. I think that the first Halloween was the best of these three, but it is the first one I saw, believe it or not, and I did enjoy it a lot, enough to go back and see the others, which I also enjoy. So, what's your take? No, it's quite good. A lot of people giving this movie a lot of shit. Probably because Michael's barely in it. Yeah, yeah, but beside that, I, I, I think people really need to see this movie because it's a really good entry into the series, and uh, I, I quite enjoy it. And I, I think, well... Sometimes you have to go along with things, and you know, Jamie Lee is is quite terrific in this, as oh, yeah. as as usual, you know. And I I I I don't want to give too many spoilers away on this one, you know. I I I like what they did with this. We'll see where they go going forward. 
See, uh, I think it's just like the same problem people had with, uh, was it Friday the 13th Part 5, I think, yeah. where they had the other kid was basically the killer in place of Jason. Right. So, yeah, Michael's in this, but that's, I think, whatever his problem was with it. I liked it, so. No, I liked it I enough like to go see too. the others. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go see the others. But this is a good one. This is a good one. Yeah. So that's really it, unless you got anything else to close out on. No, she's actually, the last thing I know Jamie Lee Curtis has done was Borderlands, the adaption of the video game. Oh, yeah, and also uh, The Haunted Mansion for Disney was another kid film. Yeah, that I don't know about, but Borderlands sounds promising. It's actually like that, that game for the PS4. Yeah, it was one of those. Was it first-person shooter? Yeah, I remember it was one of those kind of like. One of those kind of crazy things. I actually enjoyed that one. Yeah. So, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing and talk on Jamie Lee Curtis. Next time, I believe, we'll be doing Brian De Palma. And then following that, not long after, we'll be doing Tony Perkins. So, if you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1, and we're also on Podbean, thirdlessinema.podbean.com. And we're on iTunes. Uh, you can look us up for this and all other things like Spotify and Amazon Podcasts, and we're everywhere, like Stitcher, I don't know. Under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. But for iTunes, if you are pedantic, <laughs> here's the ID. 5534020044. Weirds Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the new and improved uh, Third Eye Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So uh, anything else you wanted to offer here before we close out? No, no. Uh, we thank you for listening to our Jamie Lee Curtis show. Uh, it was pretty positive for the yeah. most part. We both love Jamie, and we cover a lot of her films, both the uh, genre and the non-genre ones, and hope you enjoyed the show. Next up is Brian De Palma. Yes. We'll get to that whenever we get to it. Yeah. And um, we have a whole slew of unusual and strange things coming up yes. in this season. There are plenty planned. Or the season after it. God knows how long is it going on. <laughs> but uh, no, thanks for listening because we, we both really love Jamie Lee Curtis yeah. in different ways. I'm like, I used to have her poster above my bed. <laughs> um, I, I had Farrah Fawcett, but yeah, it's but I try it down. <laughs> when they had one for Jamie and Perfect, and I was like, Oh, for Perfect? Oh, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> you can see? See? Uh-huh. see? I had Doro Pesh on my wall. <laughs> I talked about it in the, when I interviewed her. <laughs> well, there you go. Wait, you had Joe Pesci on your wall? <laughs> Doro Pesh from Warlock. Oh, oh, there's it. I had Joe Pesci on my wall. That would be yeah. strange. Even if you were like into guys, Joe Pesci, really? Who next? Danny DeVito? <laughs> hey, I'm not going there. All right. All right. So thank you for listening. We'll be with you soon and shortly. Yes. Yeah, see you soon. All right. That was a good one.
7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune into Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurd and look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio.
Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell of Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television, right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Hello. Hello. All right, so we're finally up and running. Jeez. <laughs> Buy a new desktop, damn it. Hey, do you got any recommendations for one that's not like a grand? <laughs> no, they cost a grand. Yeah, that's why I don't do it. <laughs> it's the fun no, with these old ones. You uh, take a look at what you're doing and what you're saving, and you know that's what I did with with mine. I got you know also you know you got the holidays coming up. There might be deals. I I got this one at Best Buy two uh, years ago. Mm-hmm. I said, oh my god, you know, two hundred gigs. That's a that's a monster. It is, yeah. And then I'm thinking, well, how do I transfer the stuff from the old one? to this one without fucking it up yep so hard drives are like forty dollars now <laughs> so i took all the stuff like favorites and information and the, like these hard drives contain like a trillabyte i was like oh my god 10 years ago i paid like hundreds of dollars for a stupid little hard drive mm-hmm. and i transferred all the stuff over it and I, I was able to do everything with ease nice yeah, yeah like, see, I'm still running off a of friggin' XP. That's how old it is. But, mm. And we've got a slave in there, to, so that's why we got the extra space. And, uh, you know, I keep a lot of friggin' music on it. Yeah, I'm always backing it up and getting rid of it. But, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I do over there in terms of work as opposed to just, you know, typing a document or some shit like that. And a lot of programs that, you know, are basically old downloads and cracks and God knows what the hell else that we can't even get anymore. It wouldn't work nowadays. So Yeah, so, you know. I, I got rid of a lot of my music be- uh, primarily because... Uh, I was like, it just takes up too much space. Yeah, no, it does. And I, and, I, and I lost a lot of it. You know, I was thinking the other day, I had, you remember Napster? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I I get it. And at the same time, they had so much stuff. And, I, you know, don't laugh. I really liked The Grateful Dead. And they had all these live shows. Because I can never figure out serious. My my friends have it in their cars, but like I don't I don't drive. I don't have a car. Yeah, and it's just complicated to get it for the house. It's like you got to buy this, you got to buy a tuner, you got to buy. And I'm like, how much money is this costing me? <laughs> so I remember, you know, with Napster, they had all this live dead stuff, and I just had. Like, what is it? All those Dick's Picks things. <laughs> oh, beside the Dick's Picks, it was like lots of other and some of the stuff was just majestic, it was like really great shows, like. When they played the pyramids, mm-hmm. they were probably so fucked up. They did it for hours. I was never a fan of the Dead, but Garcia was always a really good guitar player, so I can respect it. And a lot of my friends love the Dead, so. Yeah, yeah. Well, yo, know, that's what I liked about it was his guitar playing, and I liked that he went place. See, here's how I looked at them. He pretty much always played in A. You know this, right? Yes. <laughs> and he pretty much always played in A, and he would go off in these weird tangents and weird places but when they played live and presuming they were somewhere else uh on another realm <laughs> there, there was so much that like really like i really i like this i had so many you know after i downloaded this stuff i moved it over to discs mm-hmm. 
And I remember on my old computer, it's like, your computer's full. I'm like, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it happens often. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, after my last two moves, I couldn't find all those discs. I, mm -hmm. I was like, damn. But that's okay, because, yeah, I get it. But, yeah, I know you've been having issues on and off. And yeah, I have with a, the Skype, but, yeah. The Skype, yeah. And, and, you know, I have an old laptop in the closet, which I wiped. Mm -hmm. I actually wiped my old desktop. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, the old one. When we throw them out, we just pull the hard drives, and, yeah, it, there's really nothing left on it. We just clear it off. Yeah, she wanted to sell it to the Philippines. You can do it, actually. So, uh I just looked on Google and YouTube. I'm like, okay, you want to send it to the Philippines? I, you know, this is not new. Yeah, but they're probably going to mess with it. Yeah, they'll probably work with it. So, uh, yeah. So how's everything else going? Wait, hold on, let me. This is the music I'm listening to right now. Please. It's Airbag, Norwegian uh, band. Um, you guys, since you said you had all that old dead stuff, did you have a lot of Airplane and Pink Floyd lives? I did have a lot of Pink Floyd live, and I did have a lot of Airplane. I don't know where all that stuff went. Yeah. Because I had all the studio stuff and a couple of sets and whatever the hell else, but never any of the live stuff other than what was on the sets. I was like, you know. Well, to be honest with you, I had I had a, quite a bit of Airplane Live, which I got from a friend who was a roadie. Mm -hmm. He still works at Chiller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's like about 70-something. Yeah. Um, he gave me a bunch of discs. I had to give them back, which, I, you know, a copy gave them back. Yeah. They, they were terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what happens. They were so stoned, you never knew what you were going to get. Yeah, that's one band that, on record, they're good. That's why a lot of their live release stuff was like, oh, shambolic. That's that's why I never touched it. And you know who was the opposite was that band H.P. Lovecraft, who was just like the airplane, except they had a better drummer, <laughs> to be honest with you. But they were terrible on record. I heard those two albums or three albums that they put out. But then you've got, I've got this thing, Live 68 from... I don't know. It was one of the uh, Bill Graham places, maybe Fillmore East. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And it is fucking fantastic. So, you know, I figured, well, you know, I always avoided the airplane live. But it's like, yeah, you know what? These days, maybe I should just check some of that stuff out. I always see Tim Lucas talking about it and whatever. But, you know, I don't have any really other than what's on those sets. Yeah, I don't have any stuff anymore. I ha yeah, I know those two H.P. Lovecraft albums, the two. <laughs> I think one and two, I think they were. <laughs> one and two, yeah. yeah. I think maybe Purple Pyramid put out a live thing a long time ago, but I don't even know if they had the rights to it or if they still put it out. I a think lot mine of stuff... was on like Collector's Choice or something. I don't know. It was a long time ago, but I got it when it came out, and I've played it ever since. I love that album, the live one. Yeah, yeah. It might, it might still be around somewhere. Sometimes the Bandcamp pages, I know Purple Pyramid has a Bandcamp page, so that sometimes they resurrect older things, and mm -hmm. it might be a digital download only. Mm -hmm. You know, like they don't have any physical media of this anymore. It's so old, but... Yeah. Now you never know. Some labels pick this stuff up on occasion. You never know what you're going to say. <laughs> right, yeah, there, there's that. And uh, Discogs, you know, sometimes Discogs has things. You know, some people led me to Discogs. I put a few things there. I did not have a bad experience. Yeah. It, I, it's, it's just very, it's not easy to uh, navigate Discogs. Now, it's a pain in the ass because they've got so many versions and you got the, you can limit it to the CDs only if you want to just get away from the LPs and whatever else. Right. But even then, it's a pain in the ass because there's so many different versions. And at least, I, I used to love using Discogs because unlike, say, Amazon used or eBay or whatever the hell else, you knew you were going to get the right fucking version with the right tracks on it. You know how that is where they only got bonus tracks on certain ones and it's only remastered on other ones. and mm -hmm. So you always got the right thing. I didn't really have any bad experiences there. The only trick was that it, I used to get so much stuff from all over Europe. I mean, even 
up to Russia, which you know was dicey because there were some fucking bootlegs. But they right. had a few labels that were real there, like Ironed, I R O N D, and I think Maximum Metal, and they actually did put out real discs that were remastered and whatever. So I got those from there. But the trick is that now, after Brexit, all of a sudden, almost all of Europe is like, "Yeah, fuck you. You're gonna pay like more on the shipping than you did on the item." I'm like, "No." Well, I found the I found the eBay seller that would be of uh, interest to you. I was looking for some stuff a couple of weeks ago and got to this guy's page. Don't laugh. It's called snap a donut. All right. But when <laughs> I go to his eBay page, yeah, he's like prog seller or whatever. Okay. Mm-hmm. A lot of his stuff is prog. A lot of his stuff is metal or progressive metal, mm-hmm. which might be bands you're familiar with. Yeah. Listen to a lot of that stuff. Or just a lot of it's like melodic metal or just like metal mm-hmm. metal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, his prices are great. Oh, really? It's used stuff. It's yeah, used. yeah, obviously. But it's like, we're talking seven, eight bucks? Yeah, see, that's the only stuff I'm getting lately. I'm not really getting expensive shit anymore. I'm like, no. eh, you know, I got this thing. It's, oh, great, five bucks, six bucks, ten so bucks tops. And he, and he does, like, free shipping. Mm-hmm. So I bought, like, seven things from him I got in a couple of days. I'm like, okay, I'm pleased. So what's his name? Progressive Donut or something? I, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll. Yeah, send it I over to me I don't know how to send a thing, so I'll I'll take a picture of it and send it to you. Yeah, that works. That and uh, yeah, I might buy from him again because uh, yeah, I bought I bought a couple things and free shipping, and he sent them within a few days. I'm like, okay, and he's got like 30 pages of shit. Yeah, now those are the good sellers because they carry a lot of shit like that. Yeah, I don't think he's a story. I think he's a guy like you and me who's like, I got a lot of shit. I gotta get rid of Either that or sometimes they go and get like people's collections and like, okay, let me get rid of all this shit. <laughs> so you're lucky some, that way. Some he doesn't have cover art for. So Oh, those are dice. You got to watch out. No, no. It, it looks like it looks like, like he's, he's like a big time collector. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to get these. He, he probably went. He probably scoured like you know, yard sales flea market right, right. record store closeouts <laughs> this is what i'm getting yeah yeah because i took i took a really close look at ones without cover art mm-hmm. and they're not dupes they're like this is you know he, he got whatever he can get oh yeah no i know they're not dupes it's just i always like them to be complete or as close to complete as possible i know both like five dollars <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean if you're desperate for it why not depends what it is yeah, so yeah, I'll take a picture and I'll, I'll see. Yeah, I'm gonna take another look when I have some more flowable cash. Uh, yeah, I plan to revisit this page. Uh, yes, I I bought a couple of things, and then right after I bought them, there were a couple other things on my watch list. He's like, "You offered me deeper deals on the." I was like, "No, I already bought these. You know, like just let me get these first. You know, uh, what else? I'm going to the cruise." Right. Yeah, I saw that. Oh my fucking god! So <laughs> you do that every year, don't you? The cruise to the edge. No, I, I I did it in 2019. There was no cruise to the edge in the last. Well, probably because of COVID. <laughs> because of COVID, the last two years I went May, mm-hmm. and now they're not doing it till 2024. Ooh, okay. So they start announcing the bands. You know, PFM, big fan of PFM. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, a couple of the bands, and so I said to my friend, "Do you want to go?" Mm-hmm. Our our British friend from Manchester, he decided he want to go. I'm like, all right, it's two years away, but okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is being this one guy, and then yesterday he says, you still want to go? I'm like, but you said you wanted to go, mm-hmm. and I'm working. And uh, <laughs> he says, yeah, 50-50. Well, you either do or you don't. Right. And uh, he said, well, give me all your information. I'm like, don't you have that from the previous time? 
So yeah, you misplace stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. So so decks four and five, which are lower, mm-hmm. you actually feel the swing of the waist swaying of the ship. Mm-hmm. Um, do you were, like hear the motor like when you're in steerage? No, no, no. It's like <laughs> like if if you encounter like rough seas. Oh yeah, well you will if you go down past what I used to call Cape Clitoris, Cape Hatteras. That's always nasty. Well, no, when you're when you're in a lower deck, you you know it's like, mm-hmm. look at that. That's what I'm <laughs> saying. You're really gonna feel that. <laughs> so yeah, but those are the more affordable. It used to be. What did we pay last time? Thirteen. It was seventeen. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, you take care of this. Stupid me. I'm really good with computers. Why do I let other people do this? <laughs> So he called me, and I'm at work yesterday in the city, and he's like, they're all sold out. What do you mean? Those decks are gone. I said, it's 15 minutes after they went on sale. So they're all gone. What'd you get? Deck eight. How much is that? 1,800. 1,800. Oh, hello. But Mm -hmm. I guess for the first time ever, they realized nobody got that kind of money. Yeah. So it was like 200 down. Okay. And 100 and change every month for a year. Okay, well, that's something, I guess. <laughs> You're still paying it, but you're paying it down at least. You're paying it down. Mm-hmm. Before, no, before we had to pay it all up. Yeah, right. So I, it's like a layaway. Yeah, but before, no, before we had to pay it all one shot. Mm-hmm. And I'm paying this idiot back. Then he let me take care of the hotel and the airplane, which got canceled, remember? And the Delta, mm-hmm. which was like a grand. Yep. Which I just finished paying off. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> and you're going to do it again. Well, <laughs> Well, you know, we're not even going to think about airplanes or anything like that because it's like March 2024. <laughs> oh, jeez, yeah. So, yeah, it's all right. So, I mean, the, it was supposed to be, it's less than 130 a month, which is not bad. I have yeah. no idea how the lower deck sold out so quickly, but, uh, yeah. So, who's left in yes? Is, is John Anderson going to be there? They're not he's... on it yet. They're not listed yet. Really? Yes. <laughs> Chris, did he edge without yes? <laughs> no, the last one they weren't on either. Jeez, isn't the whole thing named after them? It is. And so check this out. I just mm-hmm. po- look at my page. I just posted this about 10 minutes ago. Okay. So they had a graphic for the Cruise to the Edge uh, copying uh, very similar to one of the Journeys album, Affinity. Okay. So everybody thought Journey was going on. So <laughs> it's an asshole deal. Uh, yes. Neil just posted on uh, one of the prog pages, I'm not happy about Cruise to the Edge using our journey graphic for their cruise. I'm like, oh, shit. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> I guess I'm not on it. I don't yeah, yeah. But, like, how stupid can you be? This is very close. Everybody thought Journey was going to be on there. And then yeah. it's like he saw that, and he was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and, uh, uh, no, there's there's a lot of this bands from Nor- – oh, Symphony X. You know these guys? Yeah, I do. I actually saw Mike LaPon, the bass player there, uh, playing with a local band that I reviewed over on Third Eye at, uh, what was that dive that they keep changing their name? It used to be Mexicali Blues, and it was oh, Mexicali yeah, Live, yeah, and was, something else, yeah. Something else, yeah. It's like this little tiny joint, and people are sitting there with tables set up, eating and crap, like old farts or whatever, and then these little metal bands, like, they come in packages, like three and five, like, big power metal bands from Europe and symphonic bands, and they'd be sitting there playing to this audience of, you know, 25 people. <laughs> While people were eating their dinner and stuff, like, what the fuck? This place is beyond belief. <laughs> yeah, they added them. I'm not familiar with them. Haken, again. Mm-hmm. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> 
that says it all right there, the two hesitations. No, I saw them a few years ago on the ship. Uh, I was like, oh, I don't want to see them again. And everybody goes, Lou, did you see that show last night? I'm like, why are you taking? No, they did They did a really melodic, acoustic show of covers of prog music from Crimson. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> How did I miss that? Yeah. Well, because you saw them before. Because I saw them before, and I didn't think they were going to do anything like that. You know? Yeah. I'm still surprised you tell me you're getting all these like black metal bands and stuff on there. And people are like, yeah, this is great. I'm like, really? I mean, okay, people my age, younger, whatever, I get that. But, you know, older guys, they're into prog? Like, really? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. The, the term about Frost and um, mm-hmm. Frost. And uh, there's a few others that you would be familiar familiar with. You mean uh, Frost from, uh, oh, what the hell was he in? He was in a bunch of bands. No, the, band, the band Frost. Well, I'm wondering if he's like, yeah, that's his band, but who knows? <laughs> no, they're from Europe. I forgot what country. And... Norway? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, see, that's what I'm thinking. It's probably him. If 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 it's named after the drummer, that's who this guy is. He's a fascinating character. He's like a self-cutter and stuff. You know, pretty... well, you, know you know something? The very first cruise I went on, this is God's honest truth. It was just hot hot weekend in florida and they had an outdoor gig like a mile away from the hotel like okay we got there and me and my buddies are there the people from the cruise are there and they got the space it was an outdoor bar and i saw all these people from all around the world i didn't know them you know you know people smoke on the side you know everywhere you go if you smoke it's like over there and they're like holy you here to see i just come from germany <laughs> said, oh yeah, you know, I'm I'm here to see you know, blah blah blah. And I think John Lodge was at this event. This you know they don't they only have a few people doing like the pre-show thing the day before they sail. Mm-hmm. And Frost, everybody comes to see Frost. I'm like, who the fuck is that? <laughs> I'm actually looking them up on the town. It's like there's a billion Frosts. <laughs> well, up. yeah, I know which one it is. I, I could, yeah. They're, they're definitely metal. Yeah, now they got them from Germany and China and Hungary and Ireland. And of course, there's a Norway one, but they haven't been together for years. It must uh, be a German one, maybe. I don't know. They're definitely from, yeah. There's actually two from Germany. Oh, yeah, that's Greece, a small one. Can't can't be. Which one is which? Yeah, I know. I'm just looking myself. Yeah, but curiosity. There's a lot of these. Th- yeah, they got a couple of, there's uh, a couple of bands that really swing. They're like, they'll play metal. Mm-hmm. And then they'll they'll play that very cool Floydian kind of like dreamy kind of stuff. Oh yeah, you know what that might be. I mean, I don't know specifically, but there's a whole thing in there where they do. They call it post black, and it comes out of basically the shoegaze scene from the '90s. You know, like mm. My Bloody Valentine and Lush and all those kind of bands. Ride, Curve, and I think it all came from Alceste, if you know them at all, from France. Yeah. They did some early stuff that was basically black metal, but then they started moving into this dreamy sort of whatever. And as the years went on, he like totally lost all the black metal. Now he's basically like a, a dream pop band. It's, it's actually really mainstreamy. I don't even care for him anymore. But so it, it's definitely in that genre. From what you're saying. Well, you know, the thing is, though, I get it, but metal has a short life unless mm-hmm. you're a huge band. Yes, that's true. You know, and and you know. <sighs> Every There's still- no real huge bands anymore. That's the trick. It, you know, basically streaming and the loss of the actual record industry. Yeah. Where people would groom people and you know, like Fleetwood Mac and Bruce Springsteen putting like 20 albums before they hit, and they're like, okay, well, I believe in these guys. You know, they do 150,000 sales or whatever the hell, and then the next album they'll do better, and eventually they break out and they're a huge hit. 
that doesn't happen anymore. There's no A and R scouts. There's no labels that are going supporting anybody. Not it's even just, not even the old guys are doing good. You know, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Just yeah. give me some friggin' single or whatever, and you know, release it yourself digitally, and maybe you'll make five bucks. I'm like, seriously? <laughs> Why am I even doing nothing just for vanity? <laughs> so yeah, as I can see where they, you know, some bands are like switching up and. Uh... Oh yeah, what happens now is especially in metal, these guys are playing like 15 different bands, literally. And you look and you, if you look them up and say, okay, this guy plays in this band, in this band, in this band, and you haven't heard of half of them, but then there's like, you know, three to five that was actually a real band or is a real band, and the guy's like, oh, yeah, I played bass in this one, and I was drums in this one, and I was guitars in this one. Mm. It's like, okay, whatever. <laughs> sometimes it's worth hearing the other band, sometimes it's not. But I think that's what it is. They just keep bouncing around. And singers, especially like in the lighter end, like power metal, prog, whatever the hell, they'll just sing with like 20 different projects and they keep showing up. Oh, look, here's my guest on this album. And this guy may take over for a whole, you know, demo or album or whatever. It's like, oh, now he's our singer, but he's not really. He's just filling in. They don't even meet each other. They just send each other tapes in the mail or whatever the hell. Here, I recorded this for you. This is what I want. Bam. Well, here's the newest thing that's popped up lately. Symphonic metal. Oh, yeah. That's been around for a long time. I'm like, my wife's into that stuff. I actually got her into that back in, oh, geez, 2004 or something like that. Yeah. That's how we saw a lot of these bands like Epica and uh, yeah. Visions of Atlantis back when they were good, <laughs> back around Trinity, when they had like operatic singers, Camelot. Yeah, so symphonic metal is like the bastard child of progressive rock. And- True. Therion. <laughs> Therion used to be like a, a death metal, black metal type thing, and then they started moving more towards symphonic and, yeah. There's a lot of these kind of bands out there. Yeah, so I have no idea. Now, you know, it's the truth. By the time we set sail, who the hell knows going to be on this thing? Because shit happens. Mm -hmm. Uh, They might announce, yes, I don't know. I'm actually seeing yes tomorrow. Oh, really? In Englewood. Oh, (laughs) well, that's pretty close. Okay. Yeah, they're playing at the whatever the fuck it's called in Englewood. Do they still have that many original members? I know people keep dying off and leaving and doing no, solo projects. There is no original member. Steve Howe, who joined after Peter Banks, mm-hmm. is as close as you're going to get. Yeah, and I've, I've heard some live stuff. I had a review back over Third Eye. And lately, I'm okay, the guy's getting, oh, what are you going to do? But he's kind of losing it. You can hear his, his fingering's not as sure as it used to be. Understandable. Yeah, it's understandable, no, but, you understandable, know. Understandable, yeah. But, yeah. No, so it's uh, Steve Howe, mm-hmm. I guess the oldest Sort of original. He's, he's not. You know. Who else? Bruford? No, Bruford. <laughs> Wakeman, no, maybe? No, I don't know. No, no, no. Steve Howe, Jeff Downs, who joined with uh, Trevor Horn during the Buggles period. Mm-hmm. So Jeff Downs on keyboards. Uh, Billy Sherwood, who was handpicked by... Uh, oh, yeah, when he was passing on, he picked yeah, him. Yeah, Chris Squire. Yeah. Uh, John Davidson, who's been singing with them since 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, drums is Jay Shellen. Mm-hmm. I know that name. He used to be in. Ooh, you know what? He was in Hurricane. <laughs> yes, he was in Hurricane. Yeah. How good. the fuck? I was like Jay Shellen. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, he's been in a lot of good bands. Hurricane. Yeah. He's not that young either. No. And when when um, I saw them outside of the ship and inside the ship the last couple of times Alan's been Alan White the late Alan mm. White's been having these back issues and uh, they bring Jay on you know can you play this set and then we'll bring him on for the encore and then you can help him out with extra percussion yeah and you can see he had a trouble time getting up to the riser mm-hmm. and um, well, what do you want these guys are what pushing 80 I mean well it's... he just passed in May Alan. yeah 
I mean, you're lucky they're out there still doing it. I mean, when I was growing up, did you really go to see guys that were like 70s and 80s? No. Yeah. You know, the guys that were in like, you know, 20s and 30s. Yeah. So it's actually kind of a new thing that's, in a way, good. I mean, it's nice to see the guys finally getting their dues. Sometimes they didn't get their due back in the 80s, and now kids are going to see them, and they're like, yeah, this is great. But, you know, you, don't, you can't expect, like, miracles here. <laughs> no, the feedback I'm getting, you know, the, they've been playing, they played twice. <laughs> they played three times. They played, they played close to the edge in the U.K., Mm-hmm. They played. They played one go round of the U.S. close to the edge. This is the second go round. There's only um, two more shows mm-hmm. uh, tomorrow, and then Westbury, mm-hmm. and then in March they go back to the U.K. but Relayer. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the original plan, but there's no way Alan could have even done Relayer even on non-cores, yeah, because it's very tricky to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sheldon could have done it, but you know it would have been obvious. So now, actually, they acknowledge him as a member of Yes, whether he's getting a, a nice split, who knows? But yeah, probably not the way things usually go. But yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's that. Um, so yeah, it's tomorrow, and then I have nothing lined up until uh, two weeks. I'm going to see Hiromi, the jazz piano player mm-hmm. uh, from Japan. She's really a character, and uh, <laughs> she's very good. She had Simon Phillips in her band. He used to drum with Jeff Beck mm-hmm. and the Who. Mm-hmm. She's, she's she's really an original. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I have nothing really lined up for a bit unless something pops up on the. Uh... Well, it's getting into the holidays. Yeah, yeah. I do have a Richard Thompson show mm-hmm. December fifteenth at Symphony Space, Upper Manhattan. Mm-hmm. I got one extra ticket. You want to go? <laughs> I like Richard Thompson. We'll talk about this off air, see what the deal is. Well, if you want to go, all you have to do is pick me up and drive my ass there and back. <laughs> I gave you a free ticket. Ooh, that's a really tempting. <laughs> it's December 15th. Spot. You could think about it. Yeah, I'm actually going to look into that. We'll talk about that later, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, because I haven't promised. I, I bought you, mm-hmm. and then I said, well, I never take the wife to any shows. And I said, hey, you want to go to this? Oh, play his music. And then she got on the phone with somebody like, she's not interested. <laughs> and then. What, what era did you play her? Was it the old stuff, like when he had his wife there, Linda? Or was it uh, yeah, yeah, the Fairport Linda stuff? stuff or, yeah. It's the Linda stuff. But it's actually, what he's doing is a, um, he's doing an all request show. Mm-hmm. So, yo, know, people are going to like throw shit out there. And he's going to play. Well, you know he's going to do Calvert Cross regardless. Me. It'd be nice to hear him do something strange like Tam Lin. <laughs> you never know. You know, like, I've seen all request shows where he'll open up the, the piece of paper and go, I can't do that. <laughs> Night comes down. Come on. <laughs> I saw him play that in the bottom line. And it was I love that. That's actually my favorite Richard Thompson song. <laughs> anyway, think about that. I've asked you first. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah. she's going to the Philippines uh, Monday after that. Mm-hmm. And she can't get off her work early because she's like, I can get off at work at 6. I can be mm-hmm. home at 7.30. I'm like, the show's a day. I would not even get to the city. Yeah. So I'm like, forget it. I'll ask somebody else. So I'm asking you. Whoa, it's a rarity. Think yeah. about it. I am thinking about it. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about this afterwards. Okay. All right. So test this out, and we'll go into Jamie. Theoretically, go into Jamie V. <laughs> I would love to. I don't know. You said she's doing the Pens commercials. I don't know. I'll step with that. <laughs> don't bring that up. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's test this one out. <laughs>